Do you have anything to say about Doug Lock? <laughs> X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Annalise Bissa, associate editor at Marvel Comics in the X-Office. She is here with me today to talk about Cypher, real name Doug Ramsey, a character with a long and interesting history in the X-Men franchise who has gone from sort of a joke to one of the most prominent characters in the line. Annalise, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm I'm all right. Um, I, I woke up this morning and the musical artist Sophie had died very suddenly. And I was a big fan, or still am a big fan. So I'm sort of reeling a little bit from that. But I'm going to rally for this recording. If you're not familiar with Sophie, listeners, I think Doug Ramsey and Warlock would really enjoy her music. She was a very forward-thinking electronic musician. So maybe check that out. Other than that, it's almost February. It's hard to imagine that January is already behind us. Uh, Both already and finally behind us. Right, I I know. It feels like the (laughs) longest month maybe in history, but at the same time, oh, it's already February. Which is exciting comics-wise, because there are so many solicits I can't wait to get to. And every time (laughs) it's a new month, I'm like, oh, we're closer to Way of X or hopefully X Corp. We'll find out at some point, I imagine. (laughs) <laughs> can can neither confirm or deny right no of course but <laughs> i i am really uh excited to see everything that's happening in the, i want the gala you know what i mean like it's time for the hellfire gala well thank you so much for being my guest it's always really fun to get x office talent in here and it's also really nice to get to meet you even if it is through the internet. Teeny Howard has always spoken very, very highly of you. And you were someone who I told her months ago, I was like, if Annalise wants to do a podcast, like, (laughs) let me know. You first caught my attention, I think, on Twitter, when Princess Silvermane was happening. Of course. Princess Silvermane is always happening. But I know you're talking about. I hope that she's a mutant horse who can be revived on Krakoa, much like I assume that is the eventual twist in Marauders that Butter Rum will be resurrected to seek revenge on Emma Frost. Between, you know, uh, Butter Rum and Princess Silvermane and Evelyn the ex-cow, we're really getting and very Brightwind. close to an ex, right, an ex-pets thing. <laughs> Jamie can bring back Princess Silvermane, so I'm not super worried about her. I hope she'll just trot back to the Citadel at some point. That's sort of a good segue, I guess, into the question of editorial, which is something that I think a lot of fans don't quite know a lot about or understand as part of the creative process. And in my real job as a literary agent, I do a lot of editing work and I find it very creatively satisfying. And I think it's an important part of the process. So I'd love to hear a little bit about the books you work on, what you enjoy about being an editor, and that also sort of your origin story, your history with the X-Men, how you got to Marvel Comics etc. Which, you know, it's a lot, but take it away. I would love the, the Annalise Bissa story. This is your life. Oh, great. Uh, okay. Uh, well, to go sort of in chronological order, I started at, I started reading Marvel comics, uh, particularly the X-Men, when I was 
pretty young, I think it was like eight or so. Um, and my dad was a big X-Men fan in the 80s. Um, mm, same. And it just turned into a like, take this comic, read it, you know, come back to me whenever you're done Let's and we'll discuss, see how it goes. Right. right. <laughs> um, which turned into me back reading all of the, uh, what are they called? The like essential X-Men collections mm-hmm. were the ones that I had, the black and white ones. So all yeah. of the 80s comics look wrong to me in color, which is kind of funny. That's so funny. Like, I have no idea what color most things... At one point, there was, I was like, I have no idea what any of these colors are supposed to be. That's why Empath's a blonde now. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> that's not your decision. <laughs> no, that's, that's completely my job. And, uh, you know, <laughs> that was a learning curve for a little bit there. There's lots of hair color drama at Marvel Comics. It happens all the time. Hair colors and eye colors. I feel like it's just... That's just going to happen with characters that have been around for 5,000 years. Right. I have a lot of them memorized more than I probably should or need to, because I mean, you can like look it up generally. But mm-hmm. that is, you know, if, if it's wrong, it's usually, it is the editor's fault for not catching it. So oh, well, you, I wasn't you trying to us. call you out. There. I, was just, <laughs> I called Jordan out about Saturnine's hair, though, in Ten of Swords, because it should be much more white, platinum-y. And he was like, we'll look into it. I think we're looking into it. We'll figure it yeah, out. Yeah, I love that. Listen, it's a, it's all... A living document and a work in progress. She had like a really bad dye job and it just happened to be at the same time as this this interdimensional war. (laughs) She tried to match Megan's hair color to catch Brian's eye and it just didn't work. So it's going to revert. That's like the ultimate tragedy is like it's not just that you have the bad hair day and the loss of, you know, the love that you had hoped to have your entire life, but it's both simultaneously. And yeah, that's like you have tragedy. to grow out your roots and <laughs> you don't get the love of Captain Avalon. That's tough. But yes, so big X-Men fan, big comics reader, uh, turned into, you know, reading weekly comics, having a, a pull list at my local comic shop. Uh, and then uh, I was in college in New York City and looking for an internship like everybody else on the planet. Uh, (laughs) And when you are in college in New York City, everyone has like three internships and is really hardcore. And, you know, everybody's working at like Penguin Random House and like Mm -hmm. fashion brands. And like everybody has like name brand internships or they're working for like the state department or whatever. It's all, it's all like sort of big stuff. And I, Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, if I apply to work at, Teen Vogue, if I apply, because I, so I was actually not in the sort of English realm. I was doing more of like a political science thing. Oh, interesting. But this was after my freshman year of college. I was like, I'm not going to get a name brand like politics internship because those are all for older students. And I'm not going to, you know, I knew I was a, I was pretty confident in my writing skills. And I was like, I could do something that involves a lot of writing, but Anything that involves a lot of writing is going to be insanely hard to get because everybody on Earth wants to work for wants it, right? Yeah, a publishing house or you know whatever else you can kind of think of. And I was, you know, I was all over the map, and I was trying to think of you know what are things that you know about and you like that not everybody else on Earth also likes and knows about and wants to do. And I was like, well, I don't know a ton of people who like read comics. I wonder. Like mm-hmm. I, and I really like Marvel Comics. I wonder if I could get an internship there with like no sense of what that actually would look like. Right. Um, and so I went on their website and I looked in the internships tab and there was one that talked about essentially being pedantic for a living. It was like, do you like to correct things? Do you know, you know, all the different pants colors of the X-Men? Right. 
which at that point I had gotten a better handle on. And so I was like, you know, I like comics. I always liked like comics facts. I liked memorizing details about characters. I had the, uh, you know, like encyclopedia, the kind of like DK books mm-hmm. style where they have all the pictures of the costumes through the years. And that was like my Bible when I was a kid. I was obsessed with it. Um, and talked about needing writing skills and being detail oriented and organized. And I was like, I could do that. And so then I endeavored to write, you know, a cover letter that was a combination. I love comics and not like, I'm going to come to your office and drink your blood, you know, and like, right. Smell right. Your hair. Like I'm not a, right. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, that's <laughs> the, the a fine line. art of cover letters in the art. I started out trying to be in television agenting. Mm. I was like 22 right out of college competing with people who were 27 to 30 for the same entry-level internships. Right. And it was just impossible. And I wound up in books kind of by accident. And I found that I liked it a lot more because there's a lot more creative freedom. Uh, and now I do a lot of book-to-film type stuff. So that's, you know, it kind of it's all perfect. worked out. The moment where you're talking to someone who works with or on or in the same room as something you're a fan of is always really frightening because you don't want to come across as the creepy guy at the con. I, I will but say, you also really want to work there. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've, so now I, for the last two plus years, have helped to coordinate the internship program, the editorial internship at Marvel. Now, knowing what I know, I'm like, you know, if you're worried about being creepy, you are not going to be exactly the it's worst the in the pile don't think about it <laughs> and so anyway i you know i applied and i thought this will never happen and i went through and eventually a long time later i think i applied like i must have been right at the start of the cycle or something i got an email that was like hey do you want to interview at marvel comics and i was already back in new york at that point i was like uh y- yeah yes, yes. <laughs> right. um and i showed up and like you know, I was in like a button down, a pencil skirt and heels. Very and chic. Like very overdressed and like not really the Marvel Comics vibe because you know, it's more of like a creative workplace. But I was so stressed and I was, I just kept thinking and like saying to my dad, I was like, I just get to see the Marvel offices. Like that's. Yeah, that alone is awesome. Like I'm definitely not going to get this. There's going to be somebody else who like knows what they're talking about and, you know, has all this information that I don't have and, but you know, I get to see the office and that's going to be great. And my interview had like, you know, it was me and three editors. So I was like massively, you know, overwhelmed from that standpoint. And I blanked super hard at one point. They asked me like, so like what like TV and like movies do you like, you know, just kind of try to get a sense of mm-hmm. my taste and what, you know, what I'm into. And I like forgot every television show I'd ever watched. <laughs> what is a television actually? I please explain while I think about this. Like the only thing I could remember is I was like, I, had, I, I was like back watching teen wolf. And I was like, I can't say teen wolf. <laughs> They're never going to hire me. Um, so, you know, eventually that's a long way of saying I got the internship I spent the first, you know, three weeks completely nauseous and I couldn't figure out why. Every time I'd enter the building, I would be like in a flop sweat. And then I figured out that it was like, oh, I want this so bad. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I love doing this. Um, and very, very soon thereafter, like a month into the internship, which is way too fast, I was like, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. And mm-hmm. I switched my track in college. I switched colleges within my university. Wow. I 
reoriented my entire life to I want to be an editor at Marvel Comics, which like, there's no way it's going to happen, right? Like, it couldn't possibly. And then did the internship program. I, you know, was constantly sending my little update emails of like, hello, I still love comics, even though I'm not here. And so I graduate, I have another job. I very much was like, you know, I want to, I'll get a different job. I know I'm not, you know, if I, if I can make my way back to Marvel, that would be great. But I couldn't find a job that was even remotely in the same realm. So I ended up doing insurance. And then one very, very special day, I got an email uh, from Nick Lowe that said, mm. hey, uh, would you be interested in interviewing for a position at Marvel? And I was like, yeah, Nick. Like, <laughs> I <laughs> That's think... really nice. That's really flattering. Yeah. I mean, and so they, they needed to hire somebody because um, there were like some gaps opening up in the editorial offices and just with like how fast everything happens at Marvel – they were like, we need somebody right away. Who knows what they're doing right now. You had already proven you could do it. And I, so I did six semesters as an intern. Oh, so wow. They, they <laughs> so knew you who I was. trained as hell. Yeah. <laughs> they couldn't get me out of the offices if they tried. Right. Um, I used to like make jokes about like, oh, I'm just going to like sleep here. Which like, they were like, you do not do that. You can't do that legally. Please don't. Right. Yeah. We'll get in trouble with the labor department. But I was like, I just, I wanted to be there so bad. And so they ended up interviewing me yet again i had another moment in the interview where <laughs> i think i might have i don't know if i've said this out loud before like in public but they asked me like if you could cast a spider-man book with anybody who would you cast that was one of the questions mm-hmm. and like that's not really something you do as an intern like you you do a lot of the like tasks that editors do but you don't help to cast and you know i i knew who i liked working with but i completely got in my own head of like spider-man who would be good at spider-man who's not already doing spider-man like and hasn't done (laughs) spider-man and i was sitting there and i think i just had like a calculating like you know head empty kind of look in my head of like (laughs) just like three dots in a bubble completely and it was uh it was tom brevoort nick lowe and jordan d white all interviewing me that's a lot to take in and i and i knew them but Right, but still, you want to impress. Yeah, and I didn't actually know them that well because interns tend to work more with more junior editors. Just right, of course. Th- that's kind of the intersection of the d- of responsibilities. <laughs> and at one point, Nick just looks at me and goes, just name an artist and a writer. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, uh, okay. I can name an artist and a writer. Um, and it's, you know, it's very dumb because they knew I know who people are, you know, they, they knew, they understood. And that's, you know, a, a blessing that I had from having worked with them for so long prior is they knew I'm not like a complete ignorant. You're just having a little bit of a panic. It's like when Billy on the street stops, he was like, name a woman and they can't. Right. Exactly. Like not even their own mother. Like they just can't think of a woman, which is 51% of the earth. But when you're put on the spot like that, it can be very hard to make your brain do anything. Right. You're interviewing for your dream job and you're like, I've never heard of comics. What are those? Right. Like who is Spider-Man? Right. <laughs> Would you put a hyphen in that or no? Is there a hyphen? I'm not clear. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, basically it ended up going well. I started working at Marvel as an assistant editor. Originally, I worked uh, with Jordan D. White on the books that he was editing outside of Star Wars at the time. So he's primarily mm-hmm. working on Star Wars and then also editing Deadpool, Daredevil, Thanos. 
And a couple of other things kind of in the like spacey realm. I think I was in Guardians at that point. Right. That makes sense. Cosmic. Generally. Yeah. Uh, and so that was at that point and loved working at Marvel. I loved the books I was on and it was all awesome. You know, couldn't, couldn't have asked for more. Very, you know, happy to be doing all of that. But then one day, I think it was maybe, gosh, now all the timelines are getting mixed up in my head. That's very X-Men, so don't worry about it. About six months into working as an assistant editor, <laughs> Jordan like sat me down. And he was like, okay, so some things are moving around and books are going to be shuffling. And essentially, we're going to become the X office. Is that okay with you? And I was like, Jordan. <laughs> Is that okay with me? I was like, you know, I am an X child. Like you. Those are my people. Right. I was like, this can't be happening. This is this is more than I had ever imagined. Um, and it was because Jordan was moving away from the Star Wars books and those were going to be edited by a different group. And they were basically just shuffling everybody up. Yeah, um, I remember when that reorg happened. Yeah. And it like, it's very hard because I, for a long time, had said that, like, I didn't really want to get too, too, too attached to the books that I worked on because mm-hmm. books can end at any time. Right. Things happen. This is not always within your control. And... I just remember thinking, like, it's going to get so much harder. <laughs> to yeah, it's not- like, oh, now, now I'm in it. We're, we're committed to every beat of the heart now. Like, every breath we take in this office, I am going to be invested in. And I think it was the right thing. And I, you know, I hope that everybody's, you know, pleased with the work we've done. But particularly just because working in the X office has become become something that means something different from working in some of the other offices in terms of like the X slack and the writer's room aspect of it, like being super invested has become kind of like uh, inevitable. I mean, I've said this before. I think that this era of the X-Men is the best line wide era of the X-Men since Claremont and Simonson in the eighties. I do. That's my opinion. I love the Grant Morrison X-Men, but Line-wide, I don't think everything was at that caliber at that time. This, to me, is... If if Morrison was the antithesis to Claremont, this is the synthesis. It brings together everything I love about X-Men. You can tell that every single person on the team loves this world, loves these characters, and most importantly, loves the people they're working with. Because the level of collaboration that goes into something like Ten of Swords... I mean, just from my perspective as someone who works in trade publishing is mind boggling. I've worked on anthologies. Like I know how hard it is to get writers coordinated on a schedule and make a story like that. That's around Robin that works. It's an unbelievable achievement. It's part of why I'm always interested in having editors on because I think readers don't always understand the amount of work that goes into something like that. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much for saying all of that. I think, you know, we we feel like it's very special too. And so there's a little bit of that, you know, you're looking around as it's happening. It's that kind of like preemptive nostalgia for like, wow, like this is this is special and it's going, I will remember it as being special for a very long time right. after it, you know, inevitably in some this sense. This is going to be over. a peak of my career, essentially. Like whenever it, whenever I'm looking back on it, 
hopefully many years in the future. Right. Because I don't want it to end anytime soon. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, thank you very much. And we are having. You're a welcome. I mean, I started a podcast. I mean, I have. <laughs> I was out of the of comics for a while, and I grew up. My dad's an X Men collector. This is my first language is X Men. I have no room for like basic pre-calc because I only have X-Men in my head. So it was hard for me to kind of fall off for a while, but I did. And I'm back, baby. Like, like I was never <laughs> gone. And it really is. I read the first couple pages of House of X and was like, oh, yeah, this is this is it. Oh, here we go. <laughs> here we go. This is what I've wanted for so long. Yeah. So, I mean, that that is, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of wild because like being in the X office and being in the quote unquote Hickman era um, has been like such a large part of my like full-time comics career in terms Mm -hmm. of, you know, the time that I've been at Marvel doing this, being in this room, building this has been a huge part of it. Um, And it's, it is super fun. You know, I never want to be exclusionary about it or make people feel like, Oh, like, there's a table that you're not allowed at that is having right, more no, fun of course. without I'm you. I'm sure people are having a ton of fun at other offices too, but the collaboration level here is just so fascinating to watch. It's it's very fun, um, and I think it is definitely a you know what is it steel sharpens steel, iron sharpens iron situation mm-hmm. of you know once you get this many talented creators in a room whether that's writers or artists or colorists and you start saying like this is a room everything reflects onto each other people i think people are challenged to perform yeah we're all in this boat together and we we, the, the tide lifts the whole boat or we all go down well that and furthermore just i think it's people want to you know be the high watermark and people want to do even better and to take what's working from other books, you know, like you'll challenge yourself to, to, to echo or even exceed what you love about what other people are doing. It's, it's a, you know, that kind of environment is really exciting. Yeah. Like one person will design a costume and one and another artist will draw it and then another artist and it, it becomes more real the Mm -hmm. more times, you know, it exists in a different book and in a different, you know, art style, like seeing Pepe draw uh, like Rachel in her X factor, Pepe Laura is drawing Rachel Summers. Sorry. I I go super shorthand. No, no, no. I listen, Pepe and Rachel are both first name basis on this podcast. As far as I'm concerned. Amazing. Thank you for clarifying. Pepe Laura draw Rachel Summers in her X factor uniform designed by David Baldion. Yeah. It's like, oh, like it's it's more real now. Like I, I've seen it exist in multiple books. It's it's something she wears. There's an ontological thing there where like it does become tangible because it's repeated. Right. Similarly, like Lorna showed up in her X Factor outfit in the Mamad Azrar issue and it was like, Oh look, there it is. Like it does you do kind of just feel that. Or when the sword bearers would pop up under different artists, you were like, these are real characters now. Right. And all the places on Krakoa and all the different, like, so we're talking about art, but from a writing standpoint as well, like when you have writers who are that close in the room, being able to say like, hey, in this month, I'm doing X thing, haha, X thing, that very much gives 
another writer the possibility to say like, okay, I'm going to show that or background that or whatever in my issue. Like, to give a very recent example, Vita Ayala, who's writing New Mutants. Incredible run. We're two issues in and I think it's one of the best runs. In New- and I'm, I'm a bit of a New Mutants head and I am obsessed with what they're doing already. That, yeah, they are incredible. I'm very, very, very pleased with everything that they're bringing to the table. I think they're one of the best talents of their generation. I mean, I, I, I think that I'm just one of those people who, like the teeny Leah Vita squad, I will read literally anything they write. Well, and to have Vita and Rod t- working together on New Mutants. It's such a marriage of, of talent that works so well together. It reminds me of all the Claremonts and Cabbage stuff in the best way, but it's also something very indelibly new and modern. So that is the book in the X office that I am solo editing. Oh, wow. Well, this re- most recent issue, I thought as I was reading it, the editing on this issue is impeccable. So congratulations. <laughs> You're very <laughs> a kind. lot happens in that issue. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I, I think I, I take no credit for it in any capacity. But I will say, as an editor, I feel enormously blessed with the partnership of Vita and Rod. I like was, you know, sneaking around the fringes, Shadow King style of the Instagram live <laughs> they did uh, the other day. And just like seeing them on their own time, you know, just wanting to talk and explain to people, you know, what they're doing and how their relationship is and what it's like to work on New Mutants. Just like totally voluntarily. Yeah, you know, just for fun. Just for fun. Was like, that's that's all you can ask for is for your creators to be having a good time being creatively filled you know building positive relationships like that's that's the best feeling because everybody wants to be there everybody wants to be in the room but like i loved rod being like i love cosmar but she's very annoying to draw oh my gosh that's hysterical <laughs> i would have designed i would have designed her a little more simply that was funny that uh, yeah rod, i like rod when people amazing. feel like they can be candid like that though you know what i mean Absolutely. And I don't think that Rod's, you know, it's not, sa- no, saying it's that not in a derogatory a, way in no, any no, sense. No, no, no. It was just an, oh, I've got this character now and she's so detailed. It was just a funny, it was just a funny tidbit. Yeah, and being like, yeah, she doesn't have a human anatomy, which makes all my years of practicing <laughs> drawing human anatomy really slightly... uh, frustrating a little bit because I don't know what her body looks like skeletally or anything. Yeah, like we're just going to have to build like a character sheet where it's like, what does her skull look like? Right. Uh, what's the shape of her bones? <laughs> But so Vita <laughs> references, I think, in the issue that just came out, like what's going on in X Factor, for example, right? Like the body farm. Right. Or I loved in Excalibur 16 when they can't figure out what's happened to Betsy. So they go and chat with X Factor and Rachel and Rogue have a whole conversation. And it does feel like, you know, even though it's clearly like teeny writing Rachel, it definitely feels as though Teeny and Leah talked about the scene. Like it, you can tell that everybody's communicating. Absolutely. And that's very, very special. And, you know, I feel very lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we're all very lucky to experience it. And I'm glad that you're having such a ball creating it. And here's the thing, you can tell, I mean, we can all tell reading it, that you guys are having a great time writing it and producing it and drawing it and editing it. So that love really shines through. And I think that's part of why this era feels different and special. 
Yeah, it's a very different kind of editing in some senses because it's not like trying to... It's not like herding sheep, right? Where you're trying to like kind of keep everybody like going going in the right direction where you're like, hey, this is like kind of what we're doing here. All like the pieces, whatever. It's it's like herding cats where they're all like on top of each other and like, <laughs> right. you know, they're all like doing kind of like wacky stuff, but it's less like someone's going to like completely stray off. It's just like a contained chaos. Editing is sort of a complicated question in general as to what it entails and what it entails in comics in particular, but I'm having a ball doing it. <laughs> For the people who don't know, what would you say on an average issue it sort of entails? You don't have to go into, you know, how the sausage exactly is made, but I think a lot of people, like, my, the way I feel about it is that whenever people don't like something they read, they're like, oh, editorial must have interfered. <laughs> I'm like, I don't think that's how editorial works. You know, and I, like, I think it's a more symbiotic process than that. I think a lot of fans have the perception that editorial just exists to, like, write no on things in a script. <laughs> so pretty much everything I will say about editing comics is some version of a paraphrased something from Tom Brevoort, uh, who's been at Marvel for, like, three decades. and Yeah, very long time. Like, has seen it all, knows it all, has worked with everybody. So none of this is coming from me in any capacity in terms of like wisdom but a tom brevoort quote that is pretty well known is like creators get the credit editors get the blame right right <laughs> and, and and that's not intended to be like a, a slam on anybody or like a, a negative perception of events that's intended to be like that's how it should be that's right that's part of the job you take you you know you take on any of the you know the problems, the, the eye colors that are wrong, the mischaracterizations, any of that, like, you need to be a big enough person to own that stuff when it happens. And you need to be a big enough person to say, you know, when a review comes out and they call out this line as being perfect and transcendent and excellent. And you're like, well, I kind of wrote that. Like, yeah. you know. You can't say that was me, right? <laughs> yeah, like that's that's not what your job is. And right. if you are really obsessed with getting the credit for things, you shouldn't be an editor. Like that's not why you're here. So to go back to your original question, I think part of why people have a hard time understanding what editorial entails is that it is very different on each book, mm -hmm. um, and in each office, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, so because sometimes a book is essentially handed to you and it's, you know, hey, we want to do this. You know, maybe we have a contractual obligation or these set of circumstances and like you need to provide, you need to create X book. Right. Oversee this. That, that this needs to exist. You are the one who is going to make it exist. And sometimes it's, hey, we need a book in three months. Any ideas? Get us, get like, us a book. Right. <laughs> yeah. Those are sort of the ends of the spectrum in terms of like your ability to put your stamp on it. Because sometimes a book is essentially handed to you with talent attached, a story rolling, like that is all kind of out of your hands. And it's a matter of like making the book as good as it can possibly be with the pieces that already exist. And sometimes it's like legitimately do whatever any artist any writer, as long as 
It works budgetarily. As long as it hits shelves in March and we can afford it, go for it. Exactly. And so that's a sort of spectrum of difference in terms of how books come into being. And then just every book requires something different. Broadly, the editor is the one who finds and hires talent. Mm -hmm. Finds... Not necessarily. Uh, We have a talent management team who are incredibly indispensable in terms of finding artists, particularly writers as well. But as an editor, you can occasionally bring on. Right. Yeah. Um, And so that's why, you know, you keep your your eyes open, your ears open, you read everything, you can get your grippy little hands on. And so you put together a team you read the script, you edit the script in terms of, you know, hey, this makes sense with what we're doing in the line, this makes sense with what we're doing in the Marvel Universe, all the characters are in character, in so, you know, as far as I understand that, then you give it to the artist, you make sure the writer and the artist are on time and everything's kind of happening in an organized fashion, you make sure everything keeps moving, the, the writing and the art are in concert, And that, you know, at the end of the day, the book is proofread, and it has a cover, and it has all of the little pieces of, like, indicia and credits where you need to be, you know, editors generally write recaps, they write solicits. I mean, with a novel, it's all about almost triaging, because you're getting hundreds of thousands of words, right? I always compare it to being sort of a godparent, but also like a midwife, kind of. This person is the one producing the child. I am going to help them birth the child. And then I am going to be responsible for the child if the parent needs help. Right. You know, it's a guiding role. And I'm always very, very proud of the books I work on. And when one of them does well, I do get that sort of like, and I help like the shake and bake girl, you know. (laughs) Um, But you do have to. And, you know, luckily... I don't have a problem doing this, but you, you know, you do have to be able to look at the talent that you're working with and saying, this is their, look at this amazing person I work with or, and, and be so proud of them and, and what they've put out into the world with your help. There's always a team behind any creative endeavor. It's kind of like, I think, how people might think of like a movie producer, I think in some senses, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, everything needs to happen on time, in budget. And you can't make any of the money people mad. Right. You know, like, and the money people, you know, big quotes around that are like the entity that is Disney, the entity that is Marvel, right? So if you have Spider-Man in your book with a gun, that is going to make the money people mad. people are going to be annoyed. Right, yeah. (laughs) Like, you know, you are there to, in some senses, be the caretaker of this long, continuous story that is Marvel Comics and, you know, to shepherd the creation of more of that story, including, you know, making sure that the characters are recognizably who they are and will make decisions in the stories that move the character forward. And, you know, that might mean it's a huge change for them. Like, it doesn't mean that they're going to always do the same thing, but it does mean that, you know, they're not completely out of character. You don't break the character. Absolutely. Because with shared IP like this with shared worlds and shared universes, the idea is you take the toys out of the box, you do interesting new things with the toys, but you don't break the toys. Totally. Spencer Ackerman and I were talking about this on the Magneto episode 
a couple weeks back because I love Morrison's Planet X, but I also completely understand why Marvel then said that wasn't really Magneto actually a couple <laughs> months later because the toy was broken. Right. And if it had been the last Magneto story ever, that would be fine. But this is a character we would like to use again. So we got to fix it. I mean, and I think that part of editorial's job, I remember there were lots of questions being posed to editorial about it and be like, someone was like, maybe Wanda did it. Or like someone came up with something else. They were like, hold on, we'll figure this out. Give us a minute. Because a lot of the time it is editorial's job to try and knit back together disparate bits of a shared universe that can get a little out in the weeds. There was a point where, as a world, in whatever sense, as a fan base, broadly, I think people were not as concerned about the nitty gritty of the world fitting together. Right? I would agree. The internet really, like the, the wiki culture and that kind of thing. Mm. You know, I think it has changed a lot of that. Like, I don't, I don't want to say... The approach to continuity. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to say that, you know, nobody ever thought about this stuff before, because I of think course. if you look at letters pages from, you know, as far back as you can go, you have people being like, why is Millie the model, you know, dating somebody different? Like, she was so in love just two issues ago or whatever. Right. Like, people have cared about continuity. Yeah, and the Marvel Universe Appendix and UncannyXMen.net, those websites have been around for 20 years. So, you know, there's there's been stuff, but... I do think that like having a YouTube channels where it's like, here are all the continuity errors in this week's issue. Like, I just think that it has become something a lot more people are obsessed with in a way that usually only real dorks like me were obsessed with previously. Well, and it, I, I think in some ways I, I respect that mode of fandom, right? It's not something that I personally relate to, but I, I get it. Right. And like, I was the kid with the, the DK book who wanted right. there to be a reason for everything and wanted the story to all fit together. But as an editor and as a, you know, creative professional, a storytelling professional, <laughs> whatever, there's a part of me that just absolutely rankles at that and goes like, it's a story. Like what we want to do is tell the story that is going to be the most compelling, the most interesting, the most enjoyable to read, and to, where, where possible, you know, work with continuity. But if something doesn't work, you know, or you're like, how can there be this many generations of X-Men students when right. everybody the ages of it all. The ages, really... right? Like, you know, Jordan's over my shoulder right now, screaming spiritually, of course. Um, right. About, you know, not talking about the ages of the X-Men. But, you know, <laughs> there's... We talk about that a lot on this podcast. And the truth of the matter, right, is it's never going to work. It doesn't right. work. It's too much of a shared universe. It's 80 years of content. Things don't match up. Right. Is Monet the same age as Cannonball? Probably. Don't worry about it. Does that make any sense? No. Just go with it. And I think in an increasingly, like, legalistic sort of... Like, this may be getting, like, slightly into, like, cultural commentary. But, like, I think people are very, like... What are like the power dynamics of this? What are right. the, is there an age gap? You know, is there a, you know, teacher student issue? Like, yeah, well, the Kitty and Piotr of it all has always been complicated, for instance. And right. I think that the sliding timescales made that complicated because they're a lot closer in age now than they were in the 80s when they definitely weren't. Right. And it's something where I think it's, it's worth thinking about, like, obviously, it's very important in real life, like power dynamics of relationships age gaps, etc., are important in real life because they're real people. They are less important 
in comics in some senses, and they're increasingly less important as you move into this sliding time scale, like you referenced, right. of when you don't know how old anybody is, getting really, really caught up on exactly how old somebody is at this point and whether or not that makes them the same age or much younger or much older than the person that they're currently dating because the X-Men are a soap opera and so everybody's dating each other. Yeah, there was a lot of discourse about the teaser of Angel and Monet. And I was like, listen, Angel and Monet is a lot more appropriate now than Angel and Husk was 20 years ago because Monet and Husk are a lot closer to Angel's age now. Right. And I don't <laughs> want to, to say, you know, people aren't allowed to feel uncomfortable about things. Of course, people can things. feel however they, right. But it is in the nature of comics that these characters sort of age asymptotically because right. no one gets to be over 40 ever. Yeah, when people get really, really worried about that stuff, there is a part of me that wants to say, like, yeah, it, it doesn't work. And I think it sort of behooves us as editors and as people who are, like, front-facing for Marvel to say, like, if you are looking for a completely perfect timeline that makes the X-Men work for the last 60 years, whatever, you are going to be disappointed. Right. It's not possible. It doesn't work. That's why DC resets their universe all the time. And I'm glad that Marvel doesn't do that. But the trade-off there, because you're not going to let the characters age in real time, is there's going to be wonky parts. That actually is a good segue into the subject of this week's episode, Douglas Ramsey, because he's a character where everybody, I, I swear, I get questions about when, it, when ages come up, he's always mm -hmm. an example people use. Because, of course, he dies in New Mutant 60 at age 15, let's say. Sure. And then comes back in Necrotia and is clearly the same age as all of the other New Mutants are now. He aged spiritually in the grave. Right, exactly. It's like, <laughs> so, right. And people were saying this about Sink. They were like, is Sink 17 or is he the same age as Monet and Husk and Chamber are now? And I was like, he's clearly the same age as Monet and Husk and Chamber are now. Don't worry about it. Like, just don't think about it. The Hellions have to have come back the same age as the New Mutants, even though they all died at 17. Right. Because otherwise, the character relationships are all screwed up. If Empath is, like, seven years older than Tower and Roulette, that's weird. Right. I think the, the, the key is everybody is the age that we're treating them. Yeah, <laughs> everybody is the age at which their character relationships with other people make sense. That's sort of my approach to it. But I understand that there's, are, that's not satisfying to people. There's always people on Twitter trying to chart out exactly how old all the characters are. And I'm like, if that makes you happy, go for it. But it's just never gonna, it's never gonna quite click. Right. But so Doug, why did you <laughs> want to talk about Doug? Doug is not a character that I have like a longstanding fondness for, actually. Um, he was not part of the like eras of X-Men that I was like a huge fan of as a kid that I have like the sort of encyclopedic knowledge about because mm -hmm. I was also primarily like an uncanny reader. Um, and so I like, this is a bit odd to say, like did not really get into new mutants as a kid. I got into it much later. It was harder to find. So I think that's true for a lot of people. The uncanny stuff was what was in trades, you know what right. I mean? Like you couldn't just go pick up. I mean, there was no new mutants omnibus until a couple months ago. Yeah. Exactly. And so I, I wasn't really into it. And then once I was working on the book, obviously, I was reading it. And I was back reading it. And I was getting, you know, more of an understanding of how all these characters fit together. But I mean, even before I was working on New Mutants, when I was working on House of X, 
Doug shows up in, in House and Powers and like, he's just such a charming little gentleman. Um, and you know, he's kind of sassy and, you know, he's got these little faces that he's making at Professor X when he's going to, you know, commu- uh, commune with Krakoa in the early days. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like, I just, I have grown in terms of my fondness for Doug as I've worked over the last, whatever, two and a half years on books with him in it. And it's really not culminated because that makes it sound like it's going to stop. It's in some ways feels like it's resolved with his role in uh, Ten of Swords. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people were afraid it was going to stop because certainly (laughs) a lot of the teases, it felt like there was the specter raised of his death. I mean, it's raised explicitly in the comics, but also Cypher and Bay are notably not on a lot of the covers that are just coming out now, clearly because when they were solicited, we were supposed to be worried, yeah. right? I mean, that's, we, that's we, part we, of the game. we got to get you guys to buy them. Of um. course. <laughs> Brian wasn't on any covers either. As a real Captain Britain and Excalibur head, like that's my bread and butter. I was terrified. I was like, he's not Captain Britain anymore. They're going to other worlds. He's going to have to sacrifice himself for Betsy. It's going to be a whole thing. So I can't tell you how much of a relief it is. Like, no, he's just a stay-at-home dad now at court with his baby. That's great. Love that for him. All I've ever wanted for him. All he's ever wanted if you go back to the 87 annual. Honestly, yes. <laughs> but, you know, I I felt the same way about Doug. One of my best friends is a really old school Doug fan. He's in his 40s and Doug was his favorite. And he was one of the few people who were extremely upset when Doug was killed. Yeah, like one of the five or six, I think. Yeah, exactly. Like, Louise Simonson was shocked that there was any... She was like, no one ever sent a positive letter about this character until he was dead. We got five letters a month asking us to kill him. Well, I mean, listen, you read back through the issues of New Mutants he's in, which I think is like 13 to 60. Yeah. And he, he gets like a... Mo- I mean, it's a big cast, right? And it's it a is. big cast that, you know... And it's a flashy cast. Right. And like, you know, there are definitely characters who you can sense, uh, I think Chris Claremont likes more than others. Yeah. He's more invested in the girls and you can tell, first of all. Right. You have to, I think I have to tread slightly carefully because we're talking primarily in terms of like who has done work with Doug Ramsey. Uh, it's Chris Claremont and it's Zeb Wells, both of whom yeah. I'm currently working with. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am a noted Chris Claremont obsessive. I met him once and it was unfathomable and i think zeb wells is one of the most talented people in the game today so i have nothing bad to say about either of them i think that chris claremont knows that sometimes people are not going to love everything he does and i think he's okay with that he's a very upfront kind of guy he has come to terms with not everybody loving everything he does absolutely yeah and i i never feel like when i criticize something he's written on this podcast that he would be upset about it in the same way that when he goes and is ever interviewed and is asked about anybody else writing the accent it's like i hate it i don't think he thinks that they're going to be mad because they know that he's just mad it's not what he would do you know what i mean yeah, and and this is one of the like interesting pieces of doing the continuing narrative of the X-Men is it's not necessarily like people who write the X-Men and then stop writing the X-Men they like, come back. Go away. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, people stay in the game and stay in in comics and like with Zeb, like he's back on an Did X-Book. New Mutants and is now back on Hellions. Yeah, and I got to say, I I think Hellions, I mean, I love everything the X office is putting out right now, pretty much. But I think Hellions is the biggest surprise to me 
it is the one I get most excited about because I never know what's going to happen in it. I just think it is a miracle of a book. And for this episode, I went back and reread the Zabwell's New Mutants, and I had forgotten how revelatory that book was also. There's that one moment at the end where Sean realizes that Ilyana has orchestrated everything. Mm Mm-hmm to get her revenge and she's just like you did this and Leona's like of course I did (laughs) you've met me right (laughs) right and then she goes in and is like talking to Piotr and Piotr's like my snowflake you're back and she's like yes you're snowflake and she's being so sweet and then she looks over his shoulder at Sean and her face goes like completely sociopath cold and she stares at her like (laughs) daring her to tell anyone what has transpired and Sean is like you know what fair game you outplayed me like right (laughs) exactly well done but also the attention and the love and detail that zeb pays to past continuity is i think notable because i take usually to continuity more of a morrisonian approach as i've called it in this podcast where it's like if it serves the story it's canon if it doesn't serve the story forget about it right what zeb does i mean i am now somewhat infamous on the internet i suppose or famous depending on who you ask as like madeline Pryor's personal defense attorney inferno is my favorite x-men story of all time but i also love madeline from her first appearance and so i have very mixed feelings about inferno the way that zeb goes back to inferno repeatedly in his work always makes me gasp with delight. So like the Maddie arc in the beginning of Hellions, even the Cameron Hodge arc that just happened because Cameron Hodge is immortal because of his deal with Nastir. Alex referring to Nastir as a friend of a friend is one of my favorite lines I've maybe ever read in Mexico. Yeah, Zeb is great at, like you said, mining prior... Mining little bits of the... Like, remember those babies that Weezy put in the Exterminators mini? Like, they're all grown up and it's a big mess. You know, like, that's great. Yeah, and but doing so in a way that doesn't make you feel like you're... You have to have read the original story or that it's damaging the original or, like, taking a shot at anything or I need to redefine this. It's just taking the toy, doing something new with it, and then putting the toy down, which is exactly right, I think. Yeah, and I think a lot of writers struggle with how do I connect this to the past without... This is like the big buzzword that I think many people in the current X office will talk about, but like not doing comics about comics. Right. And unfortunately, almost 100 years into the timely Marvel story, every comic is a little bit of a comic about comics, right? Right. It's tricky. But I think it's it's something that Zeb handles very deftly. And mm-hmm. makes I would him, agree. Makes him excellent at his job. And I I used to be working on Hellions, and now I'm not, and it is a major source of sorrow for me. Oh, could, that is sad because I, I could only give I it would up. I want to work Lauren. on that book my entire life. Yeah, well, she should come on here too. Tini says she's great. Tini says everybody's great. Tini's lovely, but I, <laughs> I would love to meet her as well. Yeah, Lauren Amaro is great. So, uh, Doug, <laughs> Doug, to get back to Doug. <laughs> Like I said, my friend Alex, shout out to Alex, was a Doug obsessive as a teenager when the books were coming out and was so upset because to some people, Doug was important specifically as the character who did not have a combat power, as the character who felt less than. And so when the narrative essentially validated that concern, Mm -hmm. it 
hurt a lot of people who were invested in that. You know, when it said, you're absolutely right, Doug never should have been out in the field. Doug never should have been a new mutant because it's too dangerous and now he's dead. Yeah, they hoped he would supersede it in some sense. Exactly. It's a tricky thing. And I think that when he finally came back in Necrotia, the way Zeb Wells, and for all I know, this was also editorial input or whatever, because like you've said, it's a very complicated process. But the way that he initially came back is one of the things that I'm a little iffy on in that run that I otherwise love, which is like the very like Laurie Anderson languages of Iris thing that when he comes back and he can read all of your body language and Mm. he's an incredible fighter and all of that, because it felt to me like the directive was, we're bringing back Cypher. We need to make him cool. Let's go as far in the other direction as we can. What I really like is the way that in the current era, he has sort of reverted more to a mean that I think is comfortable. And it also makes sense in character because he came back from the dead in a very traumatic way that involved his brain being full of evil code. So, you know, it's fine that it took him a while to sort it out. Now you feel like Doug is the character he was in the 80s, but has expanded his power in certain ways that are useful can fight and bringing back the symbiosis with Warlock from the eighties is smart because that's the best way to get him in the field without getting his head blown off. Yeah. That to me is, is the solve, right? I mean, I guess we've we've mostly seen, (laughs) sorry, Vita and I call James Proudstar Jimmy just like casually, like he's somebody (laughs) that we know. Uh, I was like, you know, with Jimmy, Um, but (laughs) uh, you see like Warlock and Jimmy do the uh, like, mech kind of thing in New Mutants 14, I think it is. And like that to me was always the thing that should have sort of saved Cypher as a fighting character. Yeah, and for a while it did under Claremont. It was when the changeover happened and Simonson decided to listen to the fans and get rid of him. Right. You know, that they dropped it. But uh, yeah, I loved him always in like a little like space suit made out of his friend. Exactly. (laughs) There's There's a real bond to it. And there's something very special about their relationship and the way that Doug as the person who can understand all language instinctively is the only person who really understands this alien that's just trying to communicate and be loved and be understood. And Doug, who's a person who just wants to be loved unconditionally, finds this being that is full of nothing but love for him. Yeah. It really, there's something very beautiful about it. I know a lot of queer people have felt very attached to that relationship because it is so different and odd in the way that some of those Claremont era relationships are, where it's impossible not to read it and think something deeper and weird and fascinating is happening here. I loved how despondent Warlock seemed to be about the marriage. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I'm the third wheel now. Because that's very real. Absolutely. That's, I mean, I don't want to talk too much about... No, because we can't talk about how the how it's going to develop, obviously. But he seems a little down. And I will say that that is absolutely intentional. And I think, you know, it's, it's something that I it would be amiss if we did not reference that, you know, when you have one of the most famous, like, codependent symbiotic relationships in right. comics, and one member of that you know, that pairing goes off and like all of a sudden gets married to somebody else. Who's a stranger to the friend. And seems 
very happy. The thing that also is interesting, and I'm sure you can't say anything about it, but when I put out a call for questions, I got like 20 questions about it. And I'm like, I can't answer these guys, (laughs) is there was obviously starting in Pox Pox and throughout Dawn of X until Ten of Swords, this implication that Doug was hiding Warlock on the island and that no one was supposed to know that he was there. Obviously, you can't spoil any future plots, but like, is that something that it felt a little bit like the COVID delays messed up the timing of the story on that for Ten of Swords, where he has to have Warlock as the sword? Is that something we're going to learn more about or is that something we should just not worry about? Um, I think we will learn more about it. I would I believe that that's the case. I would not lay it at the feet of COVID. Um, I'll put it that way. Oh, okay. I was just intrigued because it felt a little bit to me like whatever that story was supposed to be got maybe truncated or or had to be moved along. The same way that for the gala now, a couple issues have to skip one month or something like that to make sure everything's lined up. It's been obviously an unprecedented time. Indeed. (laughs) In terms of comics distribution. I mean, it's been, we we all say that now about everything, right? Like in these unprecedented times, but it really did uh, a number on a really nascent era that you guys were all building. So I think it's pretty impressive. You know, reading it back, it doesn't feel like that impacted anything, particularly. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear it because it, it absolutely has impacted <laughs> everything. <laughs> I, I bet. Well, I mean, Children of the Atom was supposed to come out a year ago. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of stories that have moving parts, and, and especially in something this collaborative. Hopefully we will learn more about that because so many people wrote in and I was like, guys, this is presumably a storyline and she's not going to explain it to you on my podcast. Right. What if, what if I was like, oh, actually, uh, I have an email from Jonathan Hickman that goes into exactly what he's doing. Yeah, there. here's Let what me that read was it supposed to, to be. And um, we're not doing go. it. This is the canonical answer. We're not doing it because X, Y, Z and uh, put that on the wiki with this citation to this podcast. Right. No, that would never happen. So. <laughs> but but he, he wanted me to tell you. <laughs> well, so many people emailed me that I had to at least bring it up. But I, I mostly had to bring it up to be like, guys, that's not something that someone could explain to you on a podcast. People love to ask spoiler questions, and it is completely hysterical to me. Well, they're excited, you know. I, but it's I like, get it, but, but it's you're like, not going to buy the book if we tell you what happens. Yeah, come on, people. <laughs> if, if anything, I'm just going to start lying outright, and then it'll be re- like real fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to go to Ten of Swords, to me, it feels almost like the culmination of Doug as a character in a lot of ways. And like you said, culmination feels like the wrong word because it's not an ending, but it feels like he's transcended to a new tier in the franchise because so many of his anxieties have been about his efficacy in combat and have been about women. Right. He's introduced with a crush on Kitty that is not reciprocated. Right. He develops into kind of this relationship with Rain that never achieves anything because he dies to save her life. In the middle, he's in love with Betsy. Mm-hmm. That's another one where the age, the sliding time scale has been really, you know, people were like, do you think they're ever going to deal with Doug and Betsy? And I was like, well, the problem with that is that the plot with Doug and Betsy was that he was in love with her, but he was 15 and she was like 25. Right. And now she's like 30 and he's like 25. So it's hard to deal with that on the page. I mean, I'm sure that they will interact at some point, but it's one of those things that you have to not think too much about. Like Scott saying he's 30 in an issue where Kitty was 14. Yeah, exactly. And now he's early 30s, maybe, and she's maybe 25. Like, you just have to not worry about it. 
But I think I think that kind of dynamic does you you know you could still kind of play with that in the sense of like she's still older than him and is an established hero. Or just, you know, that way that when you interact with somebody that you had a crush on when you were a teenager, right. even if it's it would no longer be weird for you to technically have a crush on them, like, you, there still is that sense of hero worship that makes yes. it an unhealthy dynamic to actually be in an adult relationship with them. Exactly. Like, because of that, he, I mean, well, this is why, honestly to go to the kitty of it all for a second, like this is why I was so happy with the wedding twist because I don't think, and like write me hate mail if you want, this is not Annalise's fault, I'm bringing it up. I don't think there's any way for Kitty and Pyotr to have a healthy relationship because of the way their relationship began. Even though they are now only two years apart, maybe instead of five. And now that five wouldn't even be that weird because they're in their 20s and 30s, the power dynamic was complicated then. And it remains complicated because it's this idealized first love she had and he didn't live up to that expectation. And there's just so much baggage that I loved her realizing this isn't good for us. This is a very funny thing to bring up because Jordan is often like, yeah, they were like, they weren't right for each other, right? I think a lot of people, that's the general sense of it. It's like, you know, they, they've had this on and off and whatever, but like, you know, he kind of failed her. He wasn't like a good guy at that point, you know, early in their relationship. And then he became a way worse guy when she was with <laughs> wisdom. So Right, that like, you know, and so Jordan has like a, that take on it, right? I was reading those books when I was like 11. Well, that's my problem too, is I, I identified with Kitty and so I had a crush on Peter. Oh my God. And now that I'm rereading as an adult, I'm like, this is really fucked up. But to right. me, it was so romantic. And that actually, the rudest awakening, rereading with the new omnibuses that have been coming out, mm -hmm. rereading those stories is how horrified I am by that relationship. Because when Kitty was older than me and felt like an adult, it was very, very different. Right. But like when you read that, you know, and I was like within a year of her age, the idea that like a cute older guy like would be interested in me, but not Your in like a gross older way. brother, right? Yeah. yeah he's like, not trying to pressure you, but you want to be intimate with him. And he's like, we cannot. Like, and you very... like kiss him on the cheek with the mistletoe. Right. And like, yeah. when you're also 13, you're like, oh my God, this is the this greatest is everything I've ever thing. wanted. Yeah. Right. And like, in some ways I think, you know, I don't, I don't want to speak for Chris Claremont in any sense. Like, I don't think he was writing it being like, ah, the world's healthiest relationship, right? No, he was he has it. Them, I mean, he has them break up in a way that is traumatic for Kitty and that paints Peter as a little bit of a cat. I always have felt that the Claremont romances, part of what makes the soapy 80s so good is that None of those relationships, you look at Scott and Jean, you look at Scott and Madeline, you look at Aurora and Forge, none of them are something you should necessarily want to emulate. Right. They're real relationships that have a lot of problems. But he writes... But also have a lot of beautiful moments, and you, you want them to succeed, but you're also like, yikes, sometimes, you know? Right, and this is, I think, a, a, another sort of case in which... It, it behooves the reader to understand the difference between like depiction and um, endorsement endorsement. Exactly. We're like, you know, I don't, I'm pretty sure Chris Claremont was not saying a bunch of 13 year olds should go out and try to make out with a bunch of 18 year olds, but he compellingly writes it so that a 13 year old girl reading it decades later reads it and is like, that's what it feels like to be in love. Yeah. And, and, 
he what well, he was not a 13 year old girl ever right no i mean that's one of the things that's most remarkable about kitty pride as a character honestly i think and it's it's absolutely a testament to his ability to write compelling stories and compelling relationships that i there are so many of those moments throughout the x-men that give people this absolute love for this team and these characters and their, you know, romantic foibles because he makes you believe in them. And I think that's just so special about the X-Men. Yeah. I mean, as a little gay boy, I was Kitty in my head, like Mm -hmm. in the same way that I think little girls reading it felt not exactly the same, but you get what I'm saying in the projection sense. And Part of what's so gratifying about Marauders now is that it feels like I find often this is a comics about comics problem. I find that often when Kitty has been written by other writers, you can tell that the writer is someone who had a crush on Kitty rather than identified with Kitty, Mm. which is a different thing. And it's just part of the fact that most writers on comics are straight men, right? Well, and, and like, that's kind of what I was saying with, like, Jordan and my perception of the Kitty yeah. peter relationship, I think, is where you're coming at that from. You know, do you feel defensive of Kitty or do you feel like you were Kitty, right? Like, right. Those are different and emotions. And I'm kind of both, which is interesting. Like, that's fascinating. I, I, I was Kitty, and so it never bothered me. And then more recently, in conversations I've been having with people for whom women, whom it really does bother. Mm. I mean, I'll just shout out Nola Fow, who I was just talking to on Twitter, and Claire Napier. We had a really interesting conversation about this. A lot of the things that Piotr does that are bad are things I didn't clock because they didn't frighten me because they're they're frightening to women in terms of the way that men behave. Mm. It didn't feel that way to me. Now, obviously, not every woman feels this way. I know a lot of women who love Kitty and Piotr as a couple and, you know, et cetera. But it was just, a, it was food for thought for me as someone for whom it was definitely like a gay power fantasy and for me you know this is like a little personal but I was certainly let's say advanced at 14 in certain respects in terms of my interpersonal relationships but it was with people my own age right so it it didn't quite I was like well of course Kitty wants to have sex but if you're also 14 and you're reading it the fact that he's 19 doesn't quite click in your head and he's also drawn obviously to look much older than he is he's a superhero And when you, when you are an adult person looking back, I think it's very... It's different. Well, and it's almost like troubling in some senses because I think about like 14-year-old girls that I know, right? Like my right. cousins or whatever. And I'm like, if a 19-year-old man got within 40 miles of them... I would kill I would go. I would go to jail. Like, right. absolutely. I would be put <laughs> under the jail, actually. Like, that, You'd be in the hole yeah. with Sabretooth. Exactly. Like, And that is the thing about it that's so... Because I find myself interrogating myself. Like, this mm. is a character... Like, I had a crush on Piotr, and now I'm looking at it like, Piotr is not behaving appropriately. You know, so it's like a very... It's very interesting. But I think you also, like, this... And this is a conversation that I've had with, like, my father in particular, is you have to, I think, also look at, like, the dynamics of, like, dating and romance and power in the 80s versus in yes, 2020. absolutely. And that stuff, like, it... it I think sometimes it's hard to look back at because the way people understand power in situations, particularly romantic. And consent and all of that. Yeah, we, we, we have a much more evolved discourse now than we did. It is, and it is just so different. And in some ways, like trying to oppose our understanding of those, like, obviously, there there's right and there's wrong. Absolutely. Yes. No yes. question. But this was a gray area kind of thing to a lot of people at that time. 
Right. It just and, was. And I don't think it I don't think it necessarily stands up to a complete 2021 understanding. This is why I brought it up at the sliding time scale, because if you are now in the modern Marvel universe, that relationship happened, what, seven years ago, max, right? So it's just one of those things you have to not think about too much. And the thing that's interesting that I was thinking about going back and rereading stuff for this episode, and I'm so glad that the new Mutants Omnibus is out and that I have it, but <laughs> this is actually an uncanny, but like, Piotr is jealous of Doug. Yeah. Because Kitty's spending time with Doug. And it's like, Honey, if you're jealous of the other 15-year-old that your 15-year-old girlfriend is hanging out with, that's like a deeper problem. <laughs> yeah, Peter's <laughs> like, um, I can't use a computer without breaking it, and your, your cute hacker boyfriend is talking to you about Star Trek, which I don't understand. It's like, Bossy oh, buddy. Star Trek, right. Like, it's like, okay, well. I mean, my thing when I was a kid also, because one of the things in the Claremont stories that I was most keyed into, and it's been fun to tease that out on this podcast, is... I always thought that there was chemistry between Kitty and Eliana. And it always felt a little bit to me like Piotr was the safe way to explore that. Interesting. But, you know, who knows? All I'll say is that tattoo artist that Kate kissed in Marauders has a very familiar haircut. Uh, okay. <laughs> no comment needed. I'm just putting it out there. I mean, Ileana's fascinating in her own right. In a million different ways. One in of my favorite ways. characters of all time. But the, the age up, down, and the way that impacts the also relationship yeah. between Kitty, Ileana, and Peter, I think is is pretty fascinating. Fully. Because it it sort of like imposes all of these different types of relationship yeah kitty's her babysitter when she's like eight and then is her best friend when they're the same age and then she comes back seven again and kitty doesn't know how to deal with that i actually i think it's fascinating when she meets the rejuvenated child eliana and they never interact again because it's clear that for kitty it's too weird absolutely like that's not that's not my friend that's a different person yeah that's some kid i don't know Right. Um, I read her a fairy tale once. Like, that's it. I don't know that girl. Oh my gosh, I love that issue so much. It's a great issue. Um, Yeah, it's it's all fascinating. All of the interpersonal relationships are obviously one of the many things that works about X-Men. And I think that's what we were going for with Doug and Bay the Blood Moon. Yeah, to bring it back around to what we were actually talking about. That's this podcast, though, we tangent for ages. I just don't want anybody who, like, loves Doug to To listen to this and be like, where is all of my Doug and my Doug Don't worry, we're going to break for the character file release soon, and then it'll be all Doug all the time. But yeah, go on, with Doug and Bay. Well, just that, like, in some ways, we have seen many, many, many of the dynamics between these characters explored over and over again in in different circumstances but over the course of decades and decades and that's something that's so fun about what we're doing right now is there are so many opportunities to bring new characters and new relationships and Mm -hmm. to throw doug what we really wanted to do was throw doug into a relationship with like this incredible person that he doesn't necessarily understand as much as he might other people right right because he understands everyone except this person which is very enticing but also intimidating right and particularly when you think about it from the standpoint of like 
power up Doug in mm-hmm. the Necrotia era of like, you know, I can I can foresee essentially what will happen yeah. based on these interactions and I can read your body language to take him back a little bit into the realm of here's this mystery. Here's this fascinating enigma of a person right. that I get to discover. I don't have the immediate understanding of all these things about them based on my powers, I have to get to know them as as a person does and as as the mm-hmm. reader would. And you kind of can grow to love her through his learning to love her, which I think is like so beautiful. <laughs> and listen, fans do. It has become really popular really fast. It reminds me a lot of the relationship at DC between Scott Free and Big Barda, which I've always really enjoyed. The idea of sort of the smart guy and his giant powerful wife. But it adds this other dynamic of she is from a completely alien culture. Mm -hmm. She does not speak his language and he is the person who speaks all languages. Right. So it is an unfathomable mystery to him. He has never had this problem before. One of my favorite issues of the Zebwell's New Mutants is during Necrotia when he first comes back and the New Mutants are meeting with Xavier and they're having this awkward conversation with him that's very surface level. And every time someone speaks, you see Doug's translation of what they're thinking. Right. That was an evolution of his power that I thought made a lot of sense, is that sort of sage-style analysis of people. Right. To give him someone where he can't translate her because he can't understand what she's saying, I think it's really clever. And by the end of the event... It's not just his love for her. We came to love Bay because she realized immediately that he was a precious thing she needed to protect. And that's how readers feel about Doug ever since he came back from the grave, right? Right. So it's this very relatable thing where she's like, for a lot of readers, especially who didn't know Doug because he died in 1988. Yeah. Which is the year I was born. Right. I was actually born that month because it's also the month that Maddie Pryor died in Dallas, which I think about a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All the Mutants is great if you haven't read it. The point is, for a lot of people like you, as you said initially, Doug is something of a new character to them. But they very quickly become attached to him and want to keep him safe. And that's exactly the arc Bay has over the course of about three issues. Well, and I think he's he's able to be a reader surrogate because he is like the comics nerd fan that sort of is his right exactly like he is you know he has to join the team after the team kind of already exists Mm -hmm. and he doesn't know where he would will fit in with it and he doesn't know if he has any value and i think that's something that people have a hard time understand people i think maybe i'm you know, getting into my own psychology here, people rarely are like, I would join the X-Men and they would love me. They would be I obsessed would, with me immediately. We would be yeah. best friends, right? I would be central to the team. If I developed mutant powers <laughs> today and I, you know, went up to Gray Malcolm Lane or through a gate to Krakoa, like I would be the star. People see themselves as a kitty or a dog where they have to right. figure out how to be a mutant and how to be a person in this world that is foreign to them. And so, yeah, it's, I think they is a little bit of the like sort of similar, not, I mean, not in, in many ways, but a little bit of the, the Peter relationship of like somebody who's kind of in that world who like sees how valuable he is. Right. They see that value that nobody else does and they want to 
get to know them and understand them and they kind of have this like beautiful immediate little courtship yeah and well and for someone who's known only war all her life to meet this person whose gift is not war well and and mercy is a old 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 school Doug trait beyond like weakness. Yeah. No, he never want he never wanted to kill. That was always there's that great issue where the new mutants gang up and beat the shit out of empath. Yes. And Doug is the one who's like, "Guys, you're being just like him. This is what he would do to us." Exactly. Like this is not the answer. This is not he he's not a He's sort of a restorative justice kind of guy, honestly. Like, it's a different, he has a different approach than the superhero approach that is very punitive and carceral in a lot of ways. He's mm-hmm. much more like, what if we talked to people? What if we met them where they are? Yeah, Sunspot's like, get him. And he's like, no. Right. If we get him. Danny's like, kick his ass. You know, and, it's, and he's like, wait, wait, guys, stop. You know, and he just can't do it. He couldn't even kill the technarchs like he can't do it he doesn't he's not that person which is why in necrotia when celine makes him do it it's Mm -hmm. so horrific exactly and like this so uh you know not to go too far behind the curtain but like there was a piece of the doug bay relationship that like particularly for teeny and i who are both tall um there was a little (laughs) bit of like tall woman energy coming through the the project of like wouldn't it be kind of great if doug had this like big wife right yeah well when teen and i stand next to each other i do feel very like i'm standing next to Bay the blood moon in certain respects because i am five eight and she is not i think she's like five nine five ten yeah but she got heels on right yeah <laughs> no every time i've interacted with teeny we've been in like uh you know x-men retreat or summit kind of environments where people tend to dress up a little bit more yeah and so we're always like hovering around the six foot mark just like standing around right like she and i are out to lunch in west hollywood and i'm like we stand up and i'm just like yes this is fine this is normal everybody stop looking at me right like sort of similar to the the big barda kind of energy that you're referring to you know it starts in some ways with this like what if he had a big wife and it develops into all of these ways where you look at, okay, how are we going to, and like, that was a scene that I feel like we really wanted to hit right because it could, sorry, I'm talking about a thing without explaining what I'm talking about. The scene (laughs) of them getting, of them meeting and go, yeah. And getting married immediately was, you know, all we had seen of Bay was essentially her being like big and threatening. Right. Right. And here is my blade seducer, which is why it's fun that she's kind of the one seduced. Exactly. But really trying to make sure that even though they can't speak to each other in the same language, like it was very clear that they were both into it. Yeah. You know, we, we really communicated. And this is why, you know, one of the many reasons Phil Noto is an absolute genius is in that Excalibur uh, issue, he just gets across like that love struck moment where like they both feel it. There's a feeling to the art and, mm-hmm. you know, teeny writing this beautiful you know, interaction and their vows to each other where it becomes clear that they are feeling the same thing in different directions. And it's beautiful. That moment that they push the veil back and he sees that she's this like, not just that she's pretty because she's not pretty in the way that like Betsy is pretty. She's scary pretty. Right. You know, she has like warrior makeup on and she's bald. 
she has an aggressive she is bald right i, I didn't I think she may have like like ridges, kind of like head ridges, but I don't okay, think she sure. has hair. But, the, yeah. but a lot of people, I think, thought that the veil pushed back was like white hair, but I think I, that's just a veil. Yes, was my read on it. Yeah, but my point is, she's she he he sees her as a beautiful but kind of alien being, and is just struck, and that ties into also his relationship with Warlock and how people have sometimes read it. He is drawn to the alien and to things that he needs to interpret. The thing that was most interesting to me about the wedding was that Warlock wasn't there. Was that a deliberate choice? Um, I think deliberate. Uh, I think, I mean, imagine it was. If you can't say, then you don't have to say. <laughs> um, yeah, I just thought it was interesting because he's been in, because he was the sword and he was around. Right. Honestly, I am not sure. I am certain that Teeny thought about it. I, it was not a part of the conversation I was party to. A question for Teeny, right? Yeah, okay. But I know, I know there was absolutely a sense of from the jump that this is going to challenge. Oh, absolutely, for the dog sure. yeah. and warlock relationship that we've sort of taken for granted, and that like there's a piece of, I mean, warlock is not Doug's imaginary friend because you know he he's because real. he's real, but he also is kind of like that. Yeah, and there's a little bit of. You know, if if Doug is growing up, if he has a job, right, he's the voice of Krakoa, he is important and valuable and communicates with this thing that is the core of the X-Men as they stand, like, we want to push him into having interesting interactions and things to do. And so with that comes this new relationship that is going to give him more to do and him these fascinating interactions and it puts him more personally in in a role where he's like more personally connected to Arako than almost anybody else while simultaneously right. being more personally invested in Krakoa than he has these like ro- yeah. yeah he has like a relationship with the land itself and with this warrior from a sort of seemingly opposing land it's it gives everybody a lot to do. <laughs> I actually have a language question that is maybe something editorials discussed. The Iraqi all speak English. Do they? Well, what's right? So is that <gasps> right? Like, what are we to are we to assume that there's magic afoot? Like, because everyone can understand each other is I guess what I'm saying. It's not as though Cipher's the one translating all the Iraqi and then can't understand Bay when the Iraqi speak to the X Men. The X Men understand them. Right. Um, I would guess. I mean, because we've seen that Arako and Krakoa, like the the lands themselves, don't speak the same language, right? Right. Like Doug has that whole thing. And that's, that's what underlined it to me. It made me rem- it made me think again. Like, oh yeah, so why does everybody speak English? <laughs> but but I mean, nobody speaks what Krakoa speaks except for Doug, right? right that's, of course, that's yeah. the whole thing. But I think it's more of a like universal communicator, like psychic. You know, that that's the idea with Krakoan, right? Is everybody has Krakoan implanted into their Right. So brain. I guess Saturnine made it so everyone could communicate or whatever. Yeah, it's a little, I think it's a little hand wavy, probably. It's sci-fi. I mean, you know, it's, it's normal to hand wave that a little bit, but it was just a thought. Because what's interesting to me is about the Iraqi is like, if they've been off Earth for 5,000 years, roughly, if that was mm-hmm. Apocalypse's time, then... They've missed the entirety of human civilization. And now they're back and they are not impressed. (laughs) Well, right. But it's interesting, the idea that, I mean, the way that I've hand-waved it, 
myself is with the as above, so below concept that it's sort of like, and also with the concept that Hickman iterates in Hoxpox that artificial intelligence, for example, is not an invention, it's a discovery. Mm. Like that human, that in all of Moira's lives, humankind develops the same technological advancements, no matter who has to invent them. <laughs> or it actually is a little bit reminiscent of Battlestar Galactica in sort of the all of this has happened before, right? It's like how evolution keeps making crabs. Exactly, exactly. So my read of it, and this could be my headcanon, or maybe I'm right, is that Iraqi culture evolved in the same way Earth culture evolved because that's how human or mutant culture evolves. They're just, because of their circumstances, they value different things. But they have paper and, you know, cars or whatever. I mean, maybe they don't have cars, but you get what I'm saying. Like they have, they're not going to walk out on Earth and be completely incapable of understanding anything about human interaction because human interaction evolved in a similar way. Interesting. That's my thought. I don't know. Steal it if you want. <laughs> less less stealing it and more just no, like I'm I don't kidding. want to say I'm, anything no, about No, no, no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I just always say with this podcast, because like, you know, writers have said on Twitter and elsewhere, like, you have to be careful about sharing ideas. I always say like blanket anything anyone hears in this podcast. If it's something you were already thinking of, which is more likely, please still do it. And if it's something that you think is a good idea, please take it from me. I won't sue. But um, I, uh, no, I think it's fascinating. I loved the interaction between Charles and Eric and Iska when they went to try and like make a peace offering. And she was like, we don't want a peace offering. We find that. I mean, the thing that's really fascinating and what I'm interested to see play out is how it all affects the minority metaphor. Because if we have now millions more Iraqi mutants than there are Krakoan mutants, then the Krakoan mutants who are an Earth minority are outnumbered by this other thing. The, the political dynamics of it become very interesting. And I'm I'm intrigued to see what happens, I guess. Yeah. You know, not that you can share any of it. And it's very clear that there are plans and stories in the works. There are indeed. That might be a good moment for us to pause for the Cerebro character file on Doug Ramsey. We kind of already did favorite storylines. So when we come back, we'll get into the reader questions those will help us also talk about any storylines we haven't thought to bring up, I imagine, because we got a lot of questions. And uh, I don't want to keep you for like four hours. So. <laughs> i got nothing <laughs> else going on. Yeah, well, you know, it's casual. <laughs> this could be a giant size. I used to call the episodes giant size if they were more than two hours, but now they're all more than two hours. So I'm just kind of, you know. This uh, character file shouldn't be too long because Doug was dead for a really long time. So uh, stay tuned. We will give you the rundown on who this guy is and what he's been up to. And then we will be back for more with X-Office Associate Editor Annalise Bissa. X-Men, X-Men. Douglas Ramsey, called Doug and known by the codename Cypher, is a member of the classic New Mutants team, most notable for his tragic death in the 1988 franchise-wide event, Fall of the Mutants. Created by Chris Claremont and Sal Buscema, his non-combative power to understand all languages failed to resonate with the majority of vocal fans, and his murder under writer Louise Simonson dramatically changed the direction of the book. Restored to life over two decades later in the franchise-wide event Necrotia, in the current run he has ascended to greater prominence than ever as the voice of Krakoa, the living island where mutant kind has established a sovereign state. Doug first appears in 1984's New Mutants 13. He's a new friend of Kitty Pride's, the two having met at Stevie Hunter's dance class and bonding immediately over their shared interest in technology, video games, and other nerdy pursuits. 
Doug proves to be an astoundingly talented hacker and helps Kitty access Sebastian Shaw's personal systems at the Hellfire Club. She's shocked when this further grants them access to government computer files on Project Wide Awake, an anti-mutant initiative connected to the Sentinel robots. The two teens grow so close so quickly that Kitty worries they may develop romantic feelings for one another, complicating her relationship with her older teammate, Colossus. In Uncanny X-Men 180, Doug surprises Kitty with the news that he's been offered a space at the prestigious Massachusetts Academy, which she knows to be secretly an arm of the Hellfire Club. Professor Xavier reveals to Kitty that Doug is a mutant with the power of omnilingualism, but because of the passive nature of his mutation, Xavier had elected to leave Doug in ignorance rather than complicate his life. Kitty decides to accompany Doug on his visit to the Academy to make sure he isn't being targeted, and the whole thing turns out to be a trap set by Emma Frost, the White Queen, who had been in a coma before this, don't worry about it, to capture Kitty herself. The new mutants rescue Kitty and Doug, and Doug has no memory of the events due to Frost's mental manipulation. In 1984's famous New Mutants 21, Slumber Party, the rogue young techno-organic alien called Warlock crashes into Xavier's when he's drawn to the mansion's Shi'ar technology. The New Mutants can't communicate with him, but Cannonball remembers Doug's power and brings him to the mansion. Doug, who had no idea he was a mutant, is pretty shocked by the whole affair, but still manages to help. He and Warlock form an immediate bond, and he soon joins the New Mutants as Cypher. In their adventures that follow, he often finds himself feeling like a liability to the team even after his power helps him communicate with the shattered psyche of Professor Xavier's son, Legion. Believing himself a burden to the team due to his lack of combat ability, Doug finally realizes his higher potential in 1985's New Mutants Special Edition No. 1, where the team is kidnapped to Asgard and Doug joins forces more intimately with Warlock, the alien becoming a suit of technological armor to protect Cypher in battle. When Warlock's mortally wounded and needs life flow from another living being to survive, Doug offers to temporarily merge with him physically and spare some of his own life force. This is a great personal risk to himself, as any kind of contact with Warlock could potentially infect Doug with the techno-organic virus. When the New Mutants return to Earth, they find that Xavier has been forced to depart for Shi'ar space, and a reformed Magneto is their new headmaster. Magneto tells Cypher not to bother participating in Danger Room training, which offends Doug and starts the two off on a bad foot. The Magneto realizes he's made a mistake, their relationship is strained, and there's no time to repair it before an incident with the cause of being called the Beyonder leads to the murder and resurrection of the entire team. Traumatized by their experience, the new mutants, including Doug, are left nearly catatonic, and only recover with psychic assistance from Emma Frost, whose student empath, one of the rival teen squad called the Hellions, manipulates Magneto into transferring his students to the Massachusetts Academy. After Magneto endangers himself in an effort to reclaim them, the New Mutants realize he truly cares, and they return to Xavier's after they're restored to mental health by the White Queen. In New Mutants 43, they seek revenge on Empath, ganging up on him and beating him to a pulp, but Doug realizes they've sunk to his level and refuses to participate in the violence. Doug's own empathy further proves essential in 1986's New Mutants Annual No. 2, where he once again risks his life by merging with Warlock to rescue his teammates, and the telepath Bessie Braddock, called Psylocke from the interdimensional slaver Mojo and his sorceress henchwoman Spiral. In the aftermath, Doug and Betsy forge a powerful connection, and Doug believes himself in love with her. Betsy's flattered by his affection and thinks him an admirable young man, but his age makes anything deeper between them impossible to consider. When Warlock's father, the evil techno-organic conqueror called the Magus, arrives on Earth in an attempt to destroy his wayward child, Doug is the only person able to figure out how to stop the nigh-omnipotent technarch. Merging with Warlock again, he learns his alien friend's DNA and uses that knowledge in New Mutants 50 to reprogram the Magus, reducing his intellectual capacity to that of an infant. During the conflict, he has the opportunity to kill the Magus, but again chooses non-violence. Not long after this, Warlock temporarily leaves the team to watch over Sunspot in the miniseries Fallen Angels. Don't worry about it. 
In his absence, Doug fears he's again useless to the new mutants, and has a nightmare about being infected with the techno-organic virus. He's relieved when he wakes up to discover it was all a dream, but the reader is able to see a microscopic speck of the virus has indeed hidden itself in Doug's eye. At a Hellfire Club party in New Mutants 53, the New Mutants and the Hellions now having a truce, Doug teams up with the Hellion Jenny Stavros, called Roulette, over a game of poker. The two flirt, and Doug wins big at the poker table thanks to his ability to subtly read the body language of the other players. High on his victory, Doug feels truly confident in himself for the first time. He and Roulette kiss, and Doug gets very, very drunk on champagne. When he realizes Roulette may have used her probability manipulation power to help him win the game in the first place, he's enraged and slaps her. Yeah, not great. A brawl between the New Mutants and the Hellions threatens to break out, but Cannonball manages to defuse the situation by suggesting they team up in a friendly contest to capture the villains Viper and the Silver Samurai, who are causing trouble. Doug ends up jumping in the way of a sniper blast meant for his teammate Mirage, surviving thanks to a bulletproof vest in his new costume. Though the Hellions win the contest, Doug saves Mirage's life and reaffirms his usefulness to the team. The New Mutants and Hellions come into conflict again over the new character Birdbrain, do not worry about it, a primitive creature who the New Mutants end up bringing back to Xavier's. Doug's jealous of how much attention his teammate Rain Sinclair, alias Wolfsbane, pays to Birdbrain. Doug's recently realized his romantic feelings for Rain, but has yet to act on them. Doug petulantly declares Birdbrain not even human, but Rain convinces him to use his power to try and communicate with the avian being and teach him English, and in the end, the process brings Doug and Rain closer than ever. It turns out Birdbrain is a genetically engineered being created by a mad scientist called the Animator, and that his fellow experiments are to be murdered in a scientific experiment. Though they've been grounded by Magneto, the New Mutants promise to help, and in the event fall of the mutants, they travel to the Animator's secret base by teleporting using one of Magic's stepping discs. Rain wants to tell Magneto their plan so they don't get in trouble, but Doug is confident they can solve the problem in return before the Headmaster even knows they're gone. In the ensuing battle, however, the Animator attempts to kill Rain, and Doug leaps in front of her to take the bullet. This time, he isn't wearing a bulletproof vest, and Warlock isn't around to shield him either. Doug begs Rain not to be mad at him as he bleeds out. Nobody notices that he's died until after the battle is over. Doug's death devastates his friends, particularly Kitty, Rain, and Warlock, and makes Magneto doubt his ability as a teacher. He remains dead for the next 21 years of publication, but he makes two paranormal appearances in 1990 and 1991 in, respectively, New Mutants Annual No. 6 and Excalibur, The Possession. The first story by Peter David shows that Doug has lingered as a ghost, not accepting his death, and he's upset when Rain expresses romantic interest in another boy, her new teammate Richter, which, lol. He ultimately gives her his blessing and finds peace. In The Possession by Michael Higgins, Doug's spirit is summoned to offer Kitty moral support as Excalibur battles an entity influencing their teammate Megan. In 1994, the techno-organic being Douglock emerges from the alien collective called the Phalanx. Douglock isn't certain whether he's Doug, though he has Doug's memories, but Rain insists he is Doug reborn, and the two end up joining the British superhero team Excalibur in trying to rekindle their aborted romance. By 1999, it's revealed that Douglock is actually just Warlock, who was also believed deceased, and has been imprinted with Doug's brain engrams. In the 2009 franchise-wide event Necrotia, the immortal mutant Selene begins resurrecting all the dead mutants on Earth using a combination of sorcery and techno-organic virus infection. She revives Doug as her servant and tasks him with executing her granddaughter Amara, the new mutant Magma. His power is dramatically enhanced by his resurrection. Doug's ability to read body language now gives him almost precognitive insight in combat and he battles his former teammates until he's freed from Selene's techno-organic control by Warlock. Warlock's intercession makes Doug apparently the only mutant resurrected in Necrotia to survive the end of the event. 
Doug rejoins the New Mutants, who have reformed as a squad of X-Men on Utopia in the wake of the Decimation, and he serves with the team for some time. In the 2018 miniseries Hunt for Wolverine, Weapon Lost by Charles Soule, Doug has isolated himself in a shack and become a filthy hermit addicted to decoding the entire internet. Don't worry about it. In the 2019 soft reboot, House of X and Powers of Ten, Doug assumes a massive responsibility in the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. As the only living being who can communicate with the island, Doug is essential to the Quiet Council's reign, sitting in on all their meetings. His bond with Krakoa swiftly becomes as intimate as his bond with Warlock, and in one possible timeline shown in Powers of Ten, they've evidently become one being. In the franchise-wide event Ten of Swords, Doug is one of the ten sword-bearers called to defend Krakoa in the mystical Otherworld, but his challenge ends up being a very different trial. Instead of dueling the massive Iraqi warrior Bay the Blood Moon to the death, he is tasked with marrying her. Though both Doug and Bay are very surprised, they feel drawn to each other immediately. Bay is disarmed by Doug's gentle nature, and Doug is fascinated by her mutant power, the Doom Note, a sonic ability that allows everyone to understand her. But since it is not true language, she is the first person Doug is unable to comprehend. Newly returned from their honeymoon, Doug and Bay begin married life in an unprecedented time for mutant kind. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back! Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Character File on Douglas Ramsey, a.k.a. Cypher. A character whose publication history is pretty straightforward. The only really weird pathway is the Douglock stuff, because for... A while there, it did seem like Doug Locke really was Doug, and then it wasn't. But other than that, it's been pretty straightforward. He was around, he died, then he came back. As do we all. Yeah, particularly now. On some level, he was the test case for Krakow, right? <laughs> because, I'm serious, because he came back in Necrotia after being dead for almost 20 years. It might even have been 20 years, actually. Yeah, it was. And integrated himself pretty seamlessly back into the team. And it goes to show that X-Men characters, because of these deep interpersonal relationships they have, you can bring them back from the dead, no matter how long they've been dead, and make it interesting. Which is why, yet again, I'm making my pitch for the return of Zaladane. Uh, Zaladane is the unofficial mascot of this podcast. Doug, for those of you keeping track, appears roughly 15 and a half Zaladanes. The Zaladane is now a unit of measurement that's mm. 12 issues. Okay. I just want to see her take her rightful place in the House of M. There was a viral tweet today that was like, Wanda is Mario and Polaris is Luigi. And I was like, Zaladane is Waluigi. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> I don't play video games, so this is all very confusing to me. Oh, well, Mario <laughs> and Luigi are the brothers. And then there's Wario, who's Mario's evil twin. And then Waluigi, who's Luigi's evil twin. So this is what so. it sounds like when other people talk about the, uh, people talk about the X-Men yeah, to people who are fans. Right. Yeah, um, pretty much. <laughs> It was just, yeah, it's had to be there, but I, I swear it was funny. So I'm going to go into reader questions because so many of you wrote in about this character. It's wild how much passion he provokes when for so long he was the character people would trot out as a joke, the way that I think people 10 years later would trot out Maggot, for example, or like, you know, characters who didn't quite hit or who are seen as a little silly i'm sure there's going to be some huge maggot story in the new era that everyone's gonna be like oh maggot's the best character ever and everyone's like really because that is just what happens sometimes in comics the, the premise of this podcast is everybody every character is someone's favorite yes so spencer ackerman pulitzer prize winning nat suck reporter and uh two-time guest on this podcast casual writes just casual but it's that always blows my mind <laughs> <laughs> God, I would love to read him write something for X-Men. But anyway, point is, hi, Connor and Annalise. 
did the original Claremont Simonson portrayal of Doug's power set applications do a bit of a disservice to the character? In a digital era where access to or manipulation of data is a matter of successfully communicating with the system, storing or transmitting it, is Cypher, in fact, one of the most powerful mutants, regardless of combat capability? One of the lessons of this past week is that a Doug Ramsey Warlock-run subreddit could impose tremendous pain upon Wall Street, pain that might be quite useful to Krakoa. What might such reimagined power mean for Doug, whose inferiority complex is central to the character? Love everything the X-Office is doing to include nestling our beloved boy in the arms of his large wife, Spencer. I think that's a great question. I think that's part of what Zeb Wells did when he brought Doug back, was to be like, binary is a language, like computer code is a language, you know, to establish... And I, like I said earlier, I think it ended up expanding to like a city is a language, combat right. is a language in ways that I thought were a little too much. But the tech stuff felt very of a piece with his development in the 80s. Well, me. I think so, this, particularly the Wall Street element of that question reminds me of like uh, characters like Trinary. Trinary was my first thought. Yeah. And like, you know, those kind of like technopath characters, mm-hmm. where I think the idea of a technopath when it was created was very like, ah, you can like build stuff and like cool right. metal objects and like gadgets and gizmos. And now when you look at or create a character that's a technopath, you're getting into a whole world of in Trinary's original backstory is you know she's in jail because she did like radical wealth redistribution yeah because she could talk to the systems and i think that's kind of a similar thing with doug where like the world has almost powered doug up without even what like even without like the zeb building his powers it would have happened anyway because our understanding of computer languages has become so central to all of society right like even if you take the cipher that we had in the 80s where he could you know he could just kind of hack into systems quote-unquote like hacking whatever hacking mm-hmm, right means. like like very like typing really fast and it's hacking right exactly you know and he helps kitty hack into the massachusetts academy computers i think at he one hacked point. into project wide awake oh yes that's what it is and <laughs> guy rich is like what what? Excuse me? Yeah, can we can we get these children out of our systems? Um, but so he's like doing these massively like dangerous hacking operations as like a fifteen year old child with his baseline powers essentially. And I think if you fast forward a couple of decades to a world where everything is completely controlled by computers. Absolutely. Even without building his power set at all, he has kind of naturally become a more powerful mutant and character. Because I think power creep is something that we talk about a ton as editors. I'm and sure, yeah. Trying to control it and, you know, it, in some senses, discourage writers from always leaning on power creep. Too many feats. Yeah, like it becomes, right. You can only make your character more powerful so many times over the course of 80 years before everybody's a demigod and nothing has any meaning. Right. Before, I mean, over the course of the 80s, Wolverine goes from healing kind of fast to I can regenerate from a single drop of blood, which is like, right. Okay. Now he needed a power up to do the latter. But by the 90s, that was just the situation. Because once you once they've done it, it's hard. Storm is a really great example. Mm. Once Storm has done some insane power feat, it's hard to then put her in a situation where she could solve it by doing that. And not have her do it. And come up with a reason why she doesn't do it. Exactly. And I think that was something that, to go maybe slightly off tangent, or on tangent, uh, like Chris Claremont was very good at showing how much effort yes. it took characters to do things. And that's something that I, 
I think good writers are still able to really get across mm-hmm. is like, even if somebody has more powers, that like, these are the kind of things that should require expenditure of effort. And they should be a little uncontrollable. Like, you know, Cannonball is unable to like, make Can't a bank turn. turn. Exactly. Right. For like, years. I think always of Claremont's first contribution to the X-Men when he was an assistant, which is in giant size when Storm and Lorna do mutant magic, essentially, Mm -hmm. or mutant technology to shoot Krakoa into space. When I read that as like an 11 year old or whatever in the Marvel Masterworks, I I might have been eight. That was like my dad bought that for me when I was little. Part of why I'm attached to Lorna is because of that moment, because you see her almost die to do that. Yeah. And I think too many people, and this is like a very broad way of expressing this, but like too many people will write heroes as if they've done all the things they've done in the past, they must be so good at this by now. Right. And they can do any of it at the drop of a hat. And I think that does not serve the character because you, part of heroism is putting yourself in situations where you are not guaranteed to succeed and not yeah, guaranteed struggle to win. And striving. Exactly. And it's, it's not as, it's not as a cathartic to read when you know that somebody's going to walk in, drop the hammer, walk out. And so to get back to the, the Doug question, I do think that's a cool piece of the Doug puzzle that we get to play with in the modern era is the fact that he has computer powers, basically. Yeah. I mean, this was a question that Robert Secundus from Comics XF wrote in about the Sage episode, which was like, how do you think the character has been impacted by our, because she has a computer brain. Mm-hmm. You know, what does that mean now? And I think that very similarly to that, when Claremont established that in Extreme, we still didn't know a ton about computers yet or the internet yet. And right. so what it mostly meant there was she's very, very intelligent. She has a perfect memory and she can analyze things by looking at them in a way that is computer-like. Now you have to think about it as like, is she partitioning her brain to perform different tasks? Is she torrenting data? What is she doing? You know, like there's so much more you can do. And Sage doesn't even have the ability to control machines. She just sort of is one. Right. Trinary was a really interesting X-Men Red counterpoint. I'm excited. I, I liked when she popped up again. And I'm excited to see what happens with her in the future. And I'm excited in general. The Wall Street question is interesting because I'm hoping that soon X Corp will be announced because I want to see how Monet and Warren are going to tackle that. Emma has shown us how the mutants are going to play with global markets in illegal ways, mm. but it would be inter- it will be interesting to see how Krakoa interacts with the world economy on its face. The other thing I'm really keen to see, and I'm hoping this will maybe be in Spice Warrior's Way of X or in X Corp, I don't know, is I'm excited to see mutant cultural output. Like, is there K-pop meaning Krakoan pop? Like, is that <laughs> being exported to the masses? Like, I, I'm, that's the cultural stuff I'm excited to dig into now that the world building in Dawn of X has been sort of completed and we know where we are. Well, the, the other thing that I do have to bring up while we're talking about this and Cypher is we have done a story about Cypher on the internet. I don't know how many people yeah. see that as like a big part of his story because there was, was a question of, about this later, but go for it. Yeah. But, it, you know, it's sort of in a period immediately prior to 
house and powers that I think sometimes f- folks don't like don't like see a, lo- a lot of like ramifications of those stories because we did a little bit of a like turn into the House of X era in some senses. I think everybody kind of tends to, for whatever reason, perhaps because House of X brought a lot of people back and perhaps because I think a lot of people dropped off for a bit after the Inhumans versus X-Men era. And just jumped back on. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's a reason that it's called the Lost Decade in <laughs> Hawksbox, right? C- can neither confirm or, c- or deny. <laughs> sure, but it made me laugh out loud. Because certainly there are stories in that period that are great. But I do think that for a lot of people, X-Men kind of jumps from Bendis, or at least from the time travel X-Men and Extermination, directly to House of X. Sure. But with all that said, there is a story about Cypher yeah, and the internet. And it's in Return of Wolverine. Um, oh gosh, Weapon Lost, which is a yeah. book that I also worked on, where, you know, Cypher basically is in too deep. The internet is a language he can read and sort of gets adrift in it. And it's a bit of a metaphor for addiction. Yeah, let me let me read the question, actually, mm-hmm. because it is good. Brian Gerhardt writes, Hi, Connor Annalise, big fan of the podcast since the start and so excited you're doing Doug. He was a favorite of mine since way back when. I'm glad they brought him back from the dead. When Charles Soule was writing Daredevil and was part of the hunt for Wolverine, we got to see Cypher in a very different light. The exploration of his powers making him an addict for information as he was processing everything as language, body language, social media feeds, etc., causing him to become a liability as well as an asset. It seems that with House of X Powers of 10, this was all dropped and a more familiar Doug was brought in. I thought it had made Doug more interesting and showed his power, once thought to be weak and useless, had the power to go beyond being babblefish and become weaponized. What do you and your guests think of this exploration of Doug and should it have been kept? Like, should they have someone always making sure Doug gets off Twitter to take a shower at least once a day? Side note, each episode I listen to, I feel the need to reread all my X-books because your analysis makes me remember how good a lot of these stories are and why I became a comic reader and X-Fan way back in the early 80s and continue to this day. Thank you for Cerebrocast. Well, thank you. That's very flattering. So that's the story that that Annalise is talking about. And I just wanted to read that. What do you think about that and about, you know, obviously there was a choice made, I think, to bring him a little bit closer back to the Doug we had known for House of X. Yeah. And and some of that is sandbox stuff, right? Like Mm -hmm. when, when Jonathan came in to do House and Powers, to a certain extent, he was, I mean, rebooting the X line, right? Everything else went away. We just did House and Powers. And there were certain pieces that he wanted in certain states, right? He wanted Xavier to have a big helmet on his head so everybody could think he was somebody else for a million years, which... Good good try. I I bought it. For a couple issues, I was like, I don't trust this. When he took it off at Davos, I was like, holy shit. So it worked on me. Excellent. I think there are still people who think he's an imposter, frankly. And maybe they're right. (laughs) <laughs> or maybe they're wrong. Um, but, you know, like, so certain pieces of it, you know, he definitely had in mind, like, yeah, I'm going to do this version of this character. Right. right. Bring Emma back to the White Queen of it all. Like, bring this character a little bit back to where they, yeah. Like, you know, because people had gone in different directions that didn't. It's sort of what we were saying about continuity. Like, does it serve the story or does it not serve the story that I want to tell? Right. And the weapon loss thing, I think, is interesting but I don't know how much like space in the House of X Powers of Ten paradigm there was for a voice of Krakoa who's also addicted to Twitter, right? Right. Yeah. If you were like, giving you him that him. role, he needed to be a little more level headed. Right. You needed him kind of at baseline cipher. And mm-hmm. I think it's it's also it's a little bit similar to how 
uh, Jonathan Hickman and Ed Brisson did Rain at the beginning of the New Mutants run. Yes, which I was relieved about, but I know was a little controversial with some people. But I, I'm very relieved to have Rain back in a in a more classic Rain place. Right, like the, you know, for some characters, Krakoa is a refresh in a very literal way. Yes, right. It's giving them the opportunity to return to their best self. Return to yeah, a, a previous iteration that might ha- like leave more directions for them to go in, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's something that is difficult about addiction in comics is right. Yeah, it's very. I think it can be very powerful, right? You have demon in a bottle. Yeah. I've always loved the Captain Britain stuff about his alcoholism. I think that's really good, but it's difficult. Once you take it on, you have, there's a responsibility that then you have to deal with. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And once a character is a, you know, self-proclaimed addict, right? And they, they take, you know, they have that sort of, I think I, I'm going to get some of the language wrong, but you know, you first have to admit it to yourself. Right. You have to admit it to others. It's part of the like recovery journey that a character goes on. And at that point, like that character is always on that journey because that's right. how addiction and recovery works. It's you, a lifelong process. Yeah. Right. People don't say, Oh, well not people all the time, but many people won't say I'm recovered. Right. They'll say I'm in recovery because that's not necessarily how that works. And so when you have somebody who's in recovery, as a character in an ongoing narrative, it's something that needs to be reflected mm-hmm. unless you have sort of a soft reboot reset of a world like we do in House and Powers. I think that it was an interesting story, but that much like some of the power creep that I talked about when he first came back, mm-hmm. I don't think it necessarily served the character as an ongoing character. And so it's a little bit like what I was saying with Magneto in Planet X, where you have to kind of pull back a little bit because the character is going in a direction where you have to commit or say, we're not dealing with that story, you know? Yeah. And you you just, I think also as a writer and as an editor, it is valuable to take your opportunities to do that stuff as naturally as possible. Mm -hmm. So it's not like from uncanny... 157 to uncanny 158 somebody looks completely different necessarily and you have to be like uh it was magic or whatever but take your opportunity when you can to say like okay we're gonna creep a little bit closer to og cypher and and that that i think is i don't want to you know speak out of school it's not a story that i wrote but right i i think it was the right choice and i think that there are I mean, a, a parallel example, and they are two characters who are tied, is Cy Spurrier did a very interesting story with Betsy in X-Force, where she realized that she had become addicted to violence and to killing. Mm. That's not something that Teenie's emphasizing in her take on Betsy, but I thought that in the most recent issue of Excalibur, where she and an alternate universe, Kanon, have a team-up, that issue was made for me in a lap, essentially. <laughs> I, I screamed on Every single page. My username on UncannyXMen.net 21 years ago was Revanche. So oh my gosh. I'm very much an old canon head. And Betsy was my favorite X-Men when I was a kid, bar none. And having her back to basics is really appealing to me. But... Wait, real quick. The the Warren line of, it's my ex-wife. Th- that's one of my favorite splash pages maybe ever. Oh, I, 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 I screamed aloud. I made it's a so noise. Good. It's, it's so, so good. It's so good. And the fact that she calls him Angel, she's like, ah, I figured Angel would be running late. Like, not Warren. Like, no. My, my, I call my ex-husband by his code name because we're not close. 
it, God, it really so feels a lot of like uh, you know it says different so dimension much. different universe it says stuff so much about the 616 versions as well which i love 616 i know <laughs> teeny and i will bang the 616 drum alone forever but there's a moment where betsy is essentially trying to force this kanon who's never met her because it's an alternate universe to accept an apology for the body swap right and kanon is resistant to it and betsy immediately gets violent because that's her instinct right that's what i think stories like like you don't need to necessarily portray Betsy as an addict in recovery because Spurrier used that analogy in X-Force. Right. But you do need to deal with the fact that Betsy is inclined toward violence and always has been someone who sees violence as maybe a first option. Mm-hmm. Part of her journey as Captain Britain, I think, has been about trying to be the noble hero she feels Captain Britain should be, but knowing in her heart that she believes she's not that. Right. With Doug, I think similarly, I don't think he needs to be an on-page addict because that story used that metaphor. But I think that emphasizing the fact that it is easy for him to get lost in the vast world that he can access is a character beat that's probably worth keeping. And I actually think that's part of why Bay the Blood Moon is so alluring to him, because it's not information he can absorb in that way. Right, it's that exploratory instinct. It's something else, and it doesn't feel like he's indulging that impulse that has sometimes been detrimental for him. Right. So that's my take on that. (laughs) Anthony Oliveira, Marvel Comics writer, one-time guest on this podcast, and my ex-boyfriend, writes, Hey, Connor and Annalise, Doug is one of my favorite characters. It seems to me to matter that his power was entirely without offensive capability, that he sought first and foremost understanding, and that he was gentle and kind. His relationship with Warlock had a strong queer coding, the language expert in a relationship that was literally undefinable, a love that cannot speak its name. I wonder if you two can speak towards whether this kind of character simply could not be allowed to survive into the grim and gritty 90s. It has always seemed to be significant that his primary mourner has always seemed to be Magneto, and it's Doug's death that led to his catastrophic backslide. Similarly, what does it mean that a character like this is now back and thriving? How has the texture of the ex-audience changed? Third question, a wife? Yours most affectionately... Well, Anthony, those are all great questions. As for the wife thing, I like it, but I agree that I always read Doug and Warlock as romantic in some sense, and I think that will probably be explored. But as I said earlier, it was also very much a part of Doug's character that he was enraptured with and intimidated by women sexually. And it doesn't feel to me like an overcompensatory like Bobby thing. It feels genuine to me. So the wife thing didn't throw me that much i think that the question about the 90s is interesting annalise your thoughts on that somewhat i mean i am not as good of a comics historian in terms of like audience versus comics content as maybe i should be i think it's hard to say i think it's easy to impose from the future like looking back and say oh, well, you know, he, he couldn't have been allowed to survive, right? I, I love that phrasing. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he couldn't have been allowed to survive. You know, I think there's definitely maybe a world where he becomes, you know, he gets this kind of badass makeover at some point. You know, had he survived, would they have put him in Warlock all the time? And Warlock would have had, you know, a big chainsaw made of, you know, T.O. There's, there's a world that that could have existed in, and maybe it's what the 90s would have demanded of him. 
Yeah, I think there's a reason that the version of the character in the 90s, of both characters, because they killed Warlock too very mm-hmm. early on, the version that comes back of both characters is Douglock, who is the synthesis of the two, who has the T.O. offensive powers, but also Doug's brain. I think that that was a deliberate choice. Actually, as someone who has, on this podcast several times, been critical of Rain's character trajectory from 1989 to House of X, um, I actually did quite like their weird relationship in the late 90s run of Excalibur. I thought it was an interesting exploration of Rain and Doug's past, given that it wasn't really Doug, but then it it, it, it actually, again, poses some of the questions of Krakoa, because... If Doug Luck has all of Doug's feelings and memories, is he or is he not Doug, right? Right. So there's just a lot there. I've mentioned before that I think Wheezy and Liefeld, initially just Wheezy, but then the two of them together, wrote out Ilyana and Danny in the late 80s because the transition to the cable team was not going to work for those characters. Mm there was just no way that Danny was going to listen to Cable. (laughs) I'm not crazy about Second Coming generally, but it has some really great moments. And one of them is when Danny and Hope get into like a fist fight because Danny gets in Cable's face. I love that. So I do think in that case, like Ileana and Danny were characters who would not have listened to Cable and would not have done that. So I think Simonson took them off the page. Right. With Doug, I think it was more, I mean, Wheezy has said that, I love that I just call her that as though I know her, I've never met this in my life. <laughs> but they all do feel like my friends, you know what I mean? That's the parasocial nature of comics. Yeah, absolutely. My my dad thinks it's hysterical that, that everybody at Marvel calls him like Stan and Jack, like so right, casually. Like as though, right, exactly, as though they were like your uncles or whatever. Right, it's like, well, St- oh, you know, that's not how Stan and Jack did it. That's not what Stan and Jack would have done, <laughs> right. But, uh... I think it's more, I mean, Weezy has said that the artists on the book found Doug irritating because every time they had a combat scene, they had to like find a way to put him behind a tree or like under a rock or something. I I think he's probably not the most exciting person to draw. And absolutely, that's like a nature of comics thing, right? Yeah, because comics are a, like the problem with a character who doesn't have an offensive power is that comics are a visual medium. And so when you have someone, this is why like Sage and Trinary often sit around in a chair and like go beep boop, you know, because with a character whose power is cerebral, I mean, a lot of the time the telepath is sitting in Cerebro because that's what they do. Yeah, and Cerebro at least looks cool and is like fun to draw. At least it looks cool. With Doug, it's like he's peeking out from behind a tree, like translating something. So it's not, I, I understand why, particularly as New Mutants became a more action oriented book over the course of the 80s like with the changeover between Claremont and Simonson, it made sense to get him off the page. I think that it also, as you point out, it pivoted the whole book in a very different direction that was interesting for all of the characters. There's something to be said for, you know, it's a Gwen Stacy moment, right? Like it changes Mm -hmm. the book permanently. All of those characters have forever changed. Magneto who has settled into a heroic role begins to slide back into evil because he can't deal with the fact that he failed this child. Right. Danny no longer has any respect for Magneto's leadership. Ilyana begins to fully lose her soul. And Rain realizes that the world is a cruel and awful thing. For all of those people, it's a very important turning point. I think 
Yet it is, though, as you point out, indicative of a wider trend that was occurring. And that is that the Claremont era of X-Men versus, let's say, the Lee, Lobdell, Nicieza era of X-Men. There is a shift from the, not decompressed, because Claremont is very, like a lot happens in each issue, (laughs) but the way that, like there are issues of the New Mutants that are just the New Mutants and the Hellions talking. Right. And by the end of the 80s, that's not where the superhero comic market was. And certainly in the 90s, it's not where it was. And Doug is Doug is interesting in the quote-unquote Claremont era as a romantic element or right. a friendship element. He's like a he's an interesting character to have interact with other characters because, you know, he in a way that Cannonball or Sunspot he he is different from Cannonball or Sunspot because, you know, they have just different issues, right? And you yeah. can ping pong Doug off of many other characters and have his specific, like, you know, Susan of problems right. and, you know, emotional vulnerabilities and weaknesses and and strengths, of, of course, right? You can put him against different people in these, like, these situations where the emotional intensity is essential. And I think to your point about the action-oriented comics, when that's not as much of a priority of the comic, Doug doesn't make sense as a body to have on the page. Right, when it's not about the soap and the romance anymore in the same way, he's a less relevant character. There's also the fact that Kitty left. Right. You know, she had gone off the page in Massacre for a bit, and Fall of the Mutants where he dies is what pivots her off to Excalibur. But he was introduced essentially as a complication in Kitty's life. A complication between Kitty and Piotr. A complication between Kitty and Xavier. And once Kitty had moved beyond all of those storylines, right. he had less to do unless you were going to have him actually get together with Rain. But then once you do that, where does the story really go? You know what I mean? I think that for Simonson, it was more interesting to kill him and give Rain an arc. And usually it's not the female character who experiences that storyline. Right. Well, I think that's that's fascinating that in some ways Doug's like biggest value as a character up until whatever, or you could say you could say ever was his dying. Right. Yeah. Because he kicked off so many important moments for other characters the whole world of the x-men changes completely and i think that's one of the things that is that was cool about (laughs) this is gonna sound horrible that was cool about his death then right is that you know people didn't die and come back as much at that point right as they do in more modern comics and so it really meant something gene had only come back twice Right. It really meant something at that point for all those characters. And again, this gets us to the House of X point of, okay, well, now actually, if a character dies, it doesn't tend to mean as much. So we need to reinvent death. Yeah, well, that's my favorite innovation of the Hickman period is that we're just going to embrace that because it had gotten to a point where the characters would make jokes about it in the comics. Which is the worst. Sorry, I, I, I'm almost certainly edited comics where that happens. And I'm not I'm not trying to call anybody out or be a jerk. But I I do not like when characters know their characters. I mean, I think when it was specifically the X-Men and they would make jokes to other superheroes about it, it was kind of funny. Like when Kitty and Peter Quill are dating and he's like, I wouldn't want to come back from the dead. And she's like, you would hate the X-Men or something like that. That was funny. But 
it has become such a cliche of the X-Men at this point, which it was not in the 80s, you're absolutely right, that making it something that's now on the page, that like mm. mutants don't actually stay dead, is a stroke of genius, in my opinion. I think I've told this story before, perhaps, so I apologize if anybody's like, I've heard that before. But one of my favorite things that has ever happened in the world was I have heard or had heard uh, Jonathan Hickman pitch House and Powers a bunch of times. I was lucky enough to hear him pitch it to a bunch of different rooms at different points in the development process for that book, or those books, uh, if you will. And one of the times that I heard him pitch it, he was going through and he was talking about, okay, we've got Krakoa, we've got this, we've got that, we've got Xavier, we've got these, all these pieces, we have Moira, and Moira's all these, these lives, and Krakoa is a nation in which they've gained because of the whole thing, right? He's doing the whole right. pitch and all the different pieces. And it's a really, it's a really daunting pitch. And, you know, he had all the elements totally nailed down, but I think he'd just done it so many times and he's getting into it. And it's maybe like, you know, 20 minutes in to this explanation. He goes, Oh, um, and mutants don't die anymore. <laughs> and everyone's like, what? <laughs> and he's he like, Excuse walk me? back to like, well, they die, but they come back, and uh, yeah, resurrection's just going to be a thing. They made a compromise with Mr. Sinister, which is their great satanic compromise, and now they can all come back from the dead. Excuse me? But it was so, so, so funny to hear this whole thing pitched, and like the pitch is going well, you know, like that there are so many things in this in this new era that like are important elements to understand it, and that didn't exist before, that something like oh yeah, mutants like don't die anymore, could just ha drop. Is a throwaway line, right? Oh, and also, by the way, they all resurrect if they die. Right. Like Cylons. And, you know, <laughs> and the room is just like, what? You know, it's so, so, so funny to me. It's um, so good. It's so good. And as someone who, like, Doug was never my favorite, but I love the original Hellions, particularly the girls. Mm -hmm. I'm very attached to Tarot and Roulette and Cat's Eye. <laughs> I texted Teeny when I was reading Creation and Marie-Ange Colbert is like in the database. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> because I love those characters. I think they're really fun in the 80s. I would like to see them pop up again. Especially because much like Doug made Eric do sort of a face heel turn, Emma's heel face turn is mm. because those kids died. So right. I'd love to see her interacting with them again now that I, I they're love, back. I love when we started to uh <laughs> we started to talk about Ten of Swords and get into like the tarot imagery and everyone was like, yeah. well obviously this is gonna be a tarot heavy uh event and you know we're working on or not not event, crossover. Um right. and when people <laughs> got into it, but everyone was like, there's really not a lot of tarot in this one, is there? <laughs> right. Sorry guys. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was really excited and she never showed up. But the point is those characters died, and Tarot came back briefly in a confusing plot in the 90s, and then in, like, a Spider-Man and Deadpool issue that Pendulette wrote once, randomly. But regardless, the point is, like, those characters, Roulette certainly felt like she was just dead. Like, that's a character that was just gone. Right. When they, the splash page where the Hellions popped up in Necrotia, I was like, oh my god, but then only Doug got to stay alive, and I was sad. I love a lot of characters like that, where they've been gone a long time because I was reading my dad's stuff, because I'm so attached to the 80s material. And so the possibility of bringing back, I mean, the fact that we're talking about tempo. <laughs> in Because, well, today, as you're listening to this episode, uh, I believe the poll is over, but the big X-Men team poll was happening. 
it's an election. <laughs> the election, the election was happening. The election was happening. I mean, I, I love Polaris, so I think we'll probably win. This is a prediction. I don't know. But, you know, the initial numbers released seemed pretty uh, far ahead for her. I would actually love for it to be the team because I love pretty much everyone who was offered up and it hurt to pick one. But Tempo is a character who had this incredible arc in the 90s and then never was really used again and then died sort of unceremoniously. I mean, it was a very moving scene, but it was like, this is not a super important character. She can die in the carry run during Age of X. That's a character who would probably just never come back again. But now, because we're on Krakoa, she can be up nominated to be on the X-Men. Like, that is the stuff I love, because I love characters that have maybe lain fallow or that we haven't seen in a long time. And I think that it's just a beautiful new status quo. I love it. I love everything about it. Glad to hear it. I'm a, I'm a big fan too. <laughs> I mean, I would imagine. So I'm just, you know, going to sing its praises and make you listen. Um, Chris Manning writes, Hello, Connor and Annalise. When Xavier reveals that Doug is a mutant, he states that he won't recruit him to join the team because of his power set being passive. Now on Krakoa, he's quite literally essential to the state's functioning. Are there other characters that could take similar importance like Doug? And does it say something about Fairmont's take on Xavier that he would view a mutant with powers that can't be weaponized as not worth bringing into the fold? Love the podcast, and I'm very thankful for the various perspectives that push my own personal worldview and experiences with these characters. Thanks. Well, thank you. I was just rereading that issue, the one where Kitty is like, why aren't we telling him that he's a mutant? And Charles is like, well, his power is useless, so <laughs> why ruin his life? Right. And to me, it's just very classic Xavier, right? Like, he... I think Claremont's Xavier believes he knows best at all times and just makes executive decisions like that. It's kind of funny because when I was a really, really hardcore Claremont X-Men reader when I was younger, I was always just very, like, accepting of Xavier. I think because as a child, it's people who act like that, who I was like, well, clearly he has a plan, right? Clearly, like he must know what he's doing, right? Yeah, like he's an adult person. He's bald, which means he's very smart. This is the right. you know shorthand I've picked up. He's got so much mm-hmm. brain power, shot all his hair out of his head or something. That's literally what happens in the 60s. That's yes. his origin story. You're absolutely right. Do you have anything to say I forgot about that. <laughs> he was so, he was thinking so much that all his hair fell out. You know, you can't have the hair impeding the brainwaves. Exactly. You know, this is maybe like a great man archetype or whatever, but really like, I was just under the impression that we were supposed to understand that when he said like, kind of like whack stuff like that, that it was actually like, yeah, you know, but like, it's Xavier. He's the smart guy. He's the headmaster. He gets it. He's got a plan the whole time and he's going, it's all going to turn out okay. Right. And then I, when I read it back, you know, as an adult, I'm like, oh, I, he's actually kind of being written as like kind of a doofus in some senses. Like, yeah, he knows what he's doing, but he has his own problems and he has his own like blind spots that make him not necessarily always make the right decisions for these children who he is in you know in charge of and sometimes he'll just go off and live in space with his girlfriend and like play basketball or whatever well right yeah and that is the thing for me like the stuff i was reading first like i was reading the very early claremont stuff because that was in the marvel masterworks and my dad could fill in with his reader copies and i was reading the trades that were coming out in 2000 which were the 80s event trades so mutant massacre fall of the mutants inferno in a lot of those he's not around because claremont shipped him off to space right 
I think Claremont thought Xavier was a good man. Claremont also found Xavier, therefore, less interesting. Right. Because Claremont felt that Xavier was convinced of his moral righteousness in a way that made him less conflicted as a character. Whereas bringing in Magneto as the headmaster and Magneto attempting to be a good person was more interesting to him as a concept. Yeah. And I think it is more interesting, right? I would agree, yeah. But for me, as someone who read Dark Phoenix very young, I've always been very sus of Xavier. <laughs> I, like, don't, I just don't trust that man because of that scene where Jean rewrites Carmen Pride's brain and it's like, oh, the professor and I do this all the time. And Scott and Rora are like, excuse me? <laughs> well, well, that shouldn't be how that is. <laughs> yeah. And I also, like, at eight, read the issue, like, X-Men 2 with the Vanisher, where, like, the, the solution is that Xavier just wipes everyone's brain in Washington, D.C. <laughs> we are all really missing out on Jordan's reread of all of Uncanny X-Men, because I my favorite part of when he was doing that, that on, so on Twitter. Much. I miss it, too. I mean, everybody will be very sad to hear that I do occasionally actually get updates on that when Jordan and I, you because uh, know, we talk all the time uh, for uh, work, but, like... You know, tell him to email them to me. I miss <laughs> it so much. But like, you know, he he called out that often the X Men did not actually win any fights. No, like, they Xavier would lose, would, and then Xavier would just violate life. someone's brain. Yeah, right. And like, that's the kind of stuff where I think you get into the the question of like, you know, Xavier's belief in his morals, you know, righteousness. Yeah, I like when Xavier and Jean think that they're good people, but kind of aren't. And that's what I really like about this era, because Xavier and Magneto, when you look at things like dealing with Sinister, that's hubristic and bad, and he's evil. Or the way that they're gaslighting Mystique is really fucked up. But they're doing it because they're like, it's for the greater good and we're doing the right thing. I think that's interesting. Where it goes a little overboard for me is in stories like deadly genesis where it's just like xavier has been the worst right all along and hiding it from you and i'm like eh. it's better to me when he's just so arrogant it seems it's more real to me that somebody yeah. who's incredibly smart and who thinks of himself as the preeminent mind on earth would just assume he knows best absolutely and and that yeah like that to me is more of the construct that's real than like the mustache twiddling villain version of Xavier where he is just I find that dull yeah it's not compelling in the same way but yeah I think I I am very excited to see how because clearly it's going to happen whatever galaxy brain retcon Hickman is going to do about deadly genesis given Moira it's going to be like insane I'm sure and I'm looking forward to it because I'm like you could fix that story I just really what I didn't like about it back then more than the Xavier thing actually was how passive a character it made her, mm. which felt out of step with how their relationship was characterized in the seventies. Right. Well, now she's very important. So now that she's the most <laughs> active character in the entire franchise, I am uh, looking forward to how that goes. I, I will say in hindsight, it obviously it seems like, of course, house of X. Great. Uh, the ability to sell the whole world on a story that lives and dies with Moira McTaggart. Crazy. The fact that there's that I've pre-ordered a Moira McTaggart action figure. Like I love it. Insane. It, uh, it fills me with joy that this is a world where that can happen. Amazing. Amazing. 
Justin Park writes, Hi, Connor. Loving the podcast as always. And the Discord has been really fun as well. As someone relatively new to comics, it's great to have a welcoming and unapologetically queer space to discuss them in. This question is partially inspired by questions from previous episodes about Polaris and Sage. Although we all love Doug and his large wife on X Twitter, how is Doug perceived by other mutants in-universe, particularly in the current era? Obviously, he's prominent as the voice of Krakoa, but does that position lend itself to respect, or is he just seen as a messenger? He clearly has some self-esteem issues, particularly regarding his combat prowess as beautifully explored during Ten of Swords. Do you think his confidence has been improved by his more prominent role in Krakoa, or perhaps even hindered by the fact that now more than ever, he's known for his ability to convey other people's, or in this case, an island's, thoughts? Thanks. Well, that's a great question for you. What do you think? That is a great question. I think he understands that he is important. You know, and we get into this a little bit in Ten of Swords, like he alluded to there, where he's like, you know, I can't, I don't want to die because I I have importance here. And whether or not that importance is because you are the messenger for somebody else's words, I, I think there's a natural element of that that does lend to, okay, so like, you know, there's, there's a place for me on this island. There's a place for me in this society that I think makes him a little bit more established and not to get into the mire of ages, but you know, I think he's a little older, right? He's married. He's not 15 anymore. Right. And you know, he's got the the love of a good woman (laughs) (laughs) and a good alien robot. Exactly. You know, all of that while you, you know, keep in life going forward and you know you're, you're always gonna fight with those demons or that you know you had when you were 15 years old you do get past them to a certain extent and mm-hmm. i think having this position in krakoa does lend him a little bit more of that like no you know what you know i have value i have my people around me and when you know he's not being asked to fight with a sword he seems you know he seems pretty solid and yeah He's got he's got skills and he's using them and you know I, I don't want to say too much because I'm not the writer and I don't want to you know <laughs> right. over, overstep anything that anybody else might want to do, but having a specific place in society like the voice of Krakoa is different I think than just being the translator and I mean he was kind of an exposition dump like character for a long time there where he would be able to look at the situation and be like ah so what the aliens are saying is is this now everybody else go and attack now that we know what we're up against and that's not really what he's doing anymore which i think is cool Mm -hmm. i would agree i think i think we'll leave that one at that because i think you've summed up and i i don't have a solid take on that <laughs> I can have a take on anything. That's my superpower. No, I love that for you. And I'm glad you're here to answer that question because I was just sort of like, I don't know. Because I've wondered about his political positioning. It does seem complicated. Jesse Atkins writes, Hi, Connor, an esteemed guest. Absolutely loving the show. I started reading X books back in 2019 with Hawksbox, and your show has been so helpful for adding context to the things I've now read. In the last year, Cypher's been an absolute breakout favorite of mine in ways I didn't expect. Since I love this sweet wife guy so much, I was wondering, what is Dudlock? And is it, in fact, as gay as it sounds? Um, so, yes, is the answer. The bottom line, I sort of went over this in the character file, but in the 90s, a piece of the phalanx, which is sort of an evolution of the techno-organic race that Warlock comes from, which has come back into focus in House of X and Powers of Ten as an evolution of Sentinel AI, potentially in ways that I'm sure will pay off. I'm personally hoping we'll see Candy Southern again real soon as a big Candy Southern head. But the point is, in the 90s, during that storyline, 
Doug and Warlock's memories and whatnot were incorporated into the phalanx by Cameron Hodge. It was complicated. Don't worry about it. Eventually, a creature, like, broke off from the phalanx and was a warlock-type being, but shaped like Doug and believed it was Doug and had Doug's memories and Doug's feelings, had sort of a romance with Rain in Excalibur, and then eventually realized that he was actually Warlock under the impression that he was Doug. He starts calling himself Warlock again, and he goes to Doug's grave and makes sure that Doug's still in there and that the techno-organic virus hasn't infected him and kind of moves on with, with his life. It's very gay in the sense that everything about Doug and Warlock is very, it feels very romantic. It's, it's passionate in a way that is, they, they are soulmates. I mean, you know, self-soul friends. Like, it's a very fascinating dynamic. And so to have them become one being, or at least that's how it seemed at first, was symbolically very much a romantic culmination of sorts. But that's not where the character ultimately went. Do you have anything to say about Doug Locke? <laughs> yeah, I mean, j- just to say that, like, that was kind of an element of the character from, like, pretty early on was this idea that, like, Warlock would bond with Doug here and there. And physically merge, yeah. Yeah, they, they, were, they were always kind of risking something, and that, that was kind of a heroic thing. Yes. When they would touch, it was endangering Doug's health. Like, it was a very, it was a forbidden contact. Right. But simultaneously, it was a way to make Doug more heroic, I think, because he was willing to put himself in danger over and over again when he needed to in order to help his friends or whatever. And there's a lot of points where Warlock is like, are you sure about this? This is not going to be good for you. And Doug's like, I need to do it for my friends. Like, you right. Know. And there there was a plot that was never quite picked up on because he ended up dying. But late in the Claremont run of movies, it zooms in and in and in and into Doug's eye. Mm. And you see a tiny speck of the T.O. virus. Right. Like, it's happening. Because Warlock keeps going, we have to stop doing this. Like, you're going to get hurt. And Doug is like, no, it's important. And I'm. it's my choice that I'm making. Right. And then they part again. And it's like, oh, okay, phew, I'm not infected. But then we see that he actually is a tiny little bit. Um, so I don't know. Food for thought. Hank Mayer writes, Hey Connor, again, just want to say you continue to do a wonderful job with the podcast. It's a highlight of my week every week. Well, thank you. My two questions are, Cypher has often been made fun of for his power not being useful in combat. The show Archer made a joke about it, calling Cypher the gayest X-Man. But I think his power is cool and exactly what I wish we saw more of in the X-Books. What's your favorite non-combative power of any mutant in the franchise? And... The current X-Books are really pushing the magic cipher friendship as one of the key relationships in New Mutants. But I always think of Doug as Rain or Kitty's friend, first and foremost. Do you think his relationship with Kitty should be focused on again? Or has Kitty moved past Doug now that she's a bisexual pirate queen? Thank you again for all your hard work. I love that line from Archer. It made me laugh out loud the first time I heard it. Because it's such a... It's, you have to, A, be an X-Men fan, B, like Cypher, but also know who he is and know that his power is a joke. Like or was treated that way. Like it's a deep, it's a very fun, and it's a throwaway line that goes nowhere. Anytime pop culture references the X-Men, I'm just like, they're talking I about just love me. It. They're <laughs> talking about my friends. Right. right. <laughs> my favorite non-combat power is probably actually, and this doesn't, this isn't quite fair because it's not her mutation, but I loved Tarot in the eighties when mm. she would just sort of be playing with her cards 
and her mutant power was to animate the images on the cards but she also was trained by like her grandma in france to read them for fortune telling and so she would just pull them occasionally and be like it is Le Amoureux, the Lovells. Like, who yeah. is this about? You know, and that was always. Or she'll really pull funny. it out and be like, mm, the plot needs us to know this now. Here's the Right, like, huh, this card's ominous. Right, exactly. I love that stuff. I love informational powers like that. I like Sage similarly because she can just pop up and be like, hello, I just analyzed like the rainfall in this area and it's going to flood soon, so we should get out of here or whatever. Right. Like, I like when you can pop in and a character can contribute to the plot with something like that. Outside of Cypher, what are some of your favorites that are less combat-oriented? I mean, I'm a longtime Kitty Pride fan. And I mean, yeah. I, like the way like Jerry's writing her in Marauders, for example, now, it is more like combat. But I mean, that's like training. That's not necessarily her mutant it's power. Not, like, yeah, she, she's figured out how to use the power in a way that supplements her black belt in five martial arts or whatever. But right. the power itself is not. Offensive. Yeah, just her ability to like phase through things I always thought was very interesting. And, you know, the way that you do see her in those Claremont issues like grow in her powers and oh, I'm learning how to walk on air and that kind of thing is very, right. very always very fun to me. I'm trying to think of other X-Men. I mean, like iBoy is a delight. He's just a little angel. He, so my issue with him is just that he freaks me out. Mm. Like the body horror of it is too much for me. And that's but he's fair. very sweet. I just I have an eye thing, so it's just like I can't I just can't deal with him. But um <laughs> God bless him. Right. Love that for him. Yeah, he's just a little 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 eye boy. Or like Nature Girl. Nature Girl is fun. I always liked Beak. Like that was a great iteration of like my mutation just sucks right which i think can be fun he didn't really even have power he was just like a bird it was just like not it was not a good time for him but yeah i don't know i i've always been a fan of the telepaths i like you know and that can be offensive but i always like i'm a classic betsy fan and i'm mm. a fan of when emma's tricky like i like when they do sneaky stuff as opposed to just side blasts so yeah i love that stuff as for your second question I think that this is something of a, well, there's two things here. One is magic was definitely the third prong of the Kitty and Doug friendship. It was really the three of them in the classic stories. Kitty and Doug were closer and Kitty and Ileana were closer, but Doug and Ileana were also close. Although like Doug was a little intimidated by Ileana because she was a demon sorceress and like very scary. If you were well, there's even there's the issue where I think they go to like the gala at the Hellfire Club and yeah. Eliana's like, I'll protect you, which is like very much presaging their conversation from, you know, Tennessee. Exactly, exactly. So there's always buddies. been that. I agree that I would like to see Kitty and Doug again, like just recapping. Because I don't think they've really been on page together since he came back from the dead. I don't think so. I mean Kitty's been curious. away from a lot of folks. Yeah, Kitty's been all over the place. And I think as Captain Kate, she's had to reestablish like who she is in a way that is apart a lot of the time from Krakoa, which Doug is tied to really intrinsically right now. Mm -hmm. But I think that might be an interesting thing for them to talk about. If she feels rejected by Krakoa and Doug on some level is Krakoa now to some extent, where does that leave Kate and Doug? I think that could be interesting. I think that part of what you're seeing, though, is... Um, what I might call a bit of the Wolverineification of magic, which is to say magic has become one of the most prominent characters in the franchise because she's unbelievably popular. 
it was a natural evolution. She was very popular in the 80s. People wanted her to come back the whole time she was dead. She came back, and then Bendis made her a real star of his relaunch. And there's a whole new generation, really, who expect that character to be sort of the lead in a New Mutants book. I think that it's very different from, like, the Zeb Wells run we were talking about, where she had just come back, and they were all like, do we trust her? Is she a demon? What's going on? But that's sort of an evolution that's happened over the last 10 years of the character. She's just kind of like she's in Strange Academy. She's around. She's become a pretty high visibility character. I think sometimes that has hurt Danny and Sean, who I think of as the more natural leaders of that team. But I think that Vita's run is really emphasizing that in a way that I'm excited about. I don't know. What do you what do you think about magic? How do you feel about magic? I mean, I love her, so I'm never mad to see more of her. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, extremely pro-magic. I'm a huge fan, so. Uh, one of the first things I, projects I, like, solo edited was about magic. Was that the What If issue with yeah, Leah Yeah, What If yeah. Magic with Leah. Which is brilliant. We'll save that for a magic episode, but it's yeah. fucking brilliant. And Leah and I, we've talked about, like, we both liked magic before that, and now we're like known magic fans it's funny how that happens right yeah right yeah i mean i think she's great i think she has such a distinctive look particularly in the like bachalo version where she's like in the black and she's got the the wider soul sword what i will say is i was back reading uh, claremont Mm -hmm. new mutants for this Ileana is like impeccably dressed all the time they all change costumes so much it's which i am obsessed with they're always in like like street clothes which i Mm -hmm. love and i think i think it's hard to ask people to come up with street clothes that make sense for every character in on like a monthly comics basis but it's something i love anyway to go back i think the bachalo design is so iconic yeah which is i I don't know i'm not crazy about it (laughs) i don't like the hot pants I'd like her to put some pants on. I like the I like the costume with the little tweak of her not having the chest window, which we don't really use anymore. Yeah, I'd like to take out the chest window and just link the hot pants and the thigh boots and just make it pants, in my opinion. <laughs> but you know, here's the thing about Eliana though, it doesn't it's kind of like Emma for me. It doesn't feel exploitative because Eliana would wear tiny hot pants. That's yeah. the kind of the person she is, so it doesn't bother me, but I'm just sort of like, eh. I don't know. I, my thing is I love the silver armor look from the 80s so mm, much like dark child yeah kind of stuff like when she's becoming dark child not the full dark child but when like leading into inferno when, when like got, bits of her are going silver yeah and then when she's got the full silver suit and the horns but she's still like normal looking and blonde you know what i mean also yeah i'm really into the one arm armored up mm. but she's in a new mutants outfit look like i really loved that but i do think that the new mutants have suffered as characters a little bit from not having costumes that are identifiable and iconic outside of the uniform. Right. Like, so I think magic, that's one of the reasons why she's... It's helped her break out, for sure. Yeah, and her power is so visually distinctive. Like, it's the discs and the sword. Flashy and fun. And you kind of get what she's doing. But I think think your point... And I love the Kirby hat with the horns. That's (laughs) that's that part of the bachelor design I love. And your point about the New Mutants not really having costumes that visually distinguish them is, is interesting. I mean... I, they tried the, they the graduation tried. costumes or whatever yeah. is, you know. I liked the Blevins era ones, the ones that they're wearing in Inferno. I like those for the most part. Like when Danny had the fringe. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. It makes them kind of perpetual students. Right. 
And with what you mentioned earlier, how the sliding timescale means that all of these students are now the same age, roughly, and there's like 600 of them, it impacts the characters because Danny and Sean and Sam and Birdo, they should have been X-Men a long time ago if they were aging normally, right? And they are X-Men. The New Mutants are now just sort of a type of X-Men to be, but they're still wearing the uniform to some extent. I like in the current run how how they're each sort of uh, customizing it. Mm -hmm. a little bit, but I wouldn't mind because I do think that's a big part of why Magic has broken out of the team in the same way that Monet has broken out of Gen X, is that they got a very sort of distinctive look. Like, Monet has that chic white, black, and red catsuit. Right. And Magic has the sort of goth Final Fantasy knight look that she's rocking. I think it would be helpful for, I mean, Danny when she's in the Valkyrie outfit is really distinctive. Yeah, that's a great look. Um, but she, I understand why she's not in that look full time. But you well, know, and one of the things that we do now is we try to say, you know, the characters can wear whatever. Like, let's just go right, across right. the pantheon. But part of the the difficulty in doing that that is like very very real and something we talk about all the time is different characters' costumes are indicative of mindsets and personality changes. And it's hard to say, okay, I think this is why people rankle at the Jean wearing the green dress costume is Mm -hmm. to them, that is her saying something about her own development, right? Like, I want to go back to that I want to go back, right. I don't want, you know, so, oh, everybody else gets forward to be forward looking and Xavier gets his weird black cat suit and and jeans back in the 60s right and magneto's in all white being you know your new god now and jean just wants to remember that time when all the boys liked her and she could (laughs) you know go to the sock hop like and so it's hard because as much as as much as costumes can just be like drawn however they become indicative of character moments, right? Like the, I think the biggest one ever maybe is storm in the Mohawk and the punk era, right? Like that they do mean something when, if you see storm in a Mohawk and leather, that's going to be a different, that's a specific kind of storm. Yeah. And I, I really like that. They're sort of cycling through costumes. I love the mutant clothes idea. I think the reason why it's difficult for some people is what you're saying, but also because as you were sort of implying earlier, The X-Men have always less worn costumes and a a lot of the time they wear street style fashions. Right. Part of what Claremont did was like every character kind of had a color scheme, but they otherwise just wore for the most part contemporary fashions and it was very current. So a problem that a character like Longshot has is that he doesn't look like himself without his hairstyle from the Mm eighties. But at the time that hairstyle was current. And Jean's outfit, the green mini dress outfit, which I love, but it's a very mod outfit that is extremely current to the 60s period it was created in. And it does feel a little bit throwbacky to people, I think. Now, but the thing is, I have been interpreting, and maybe I'm crazy, but to me, it feels like that's an intentional point of unease, that Jean is in that outfit, and it, we're supposed to notice it, because it's odd. It, it feels odd when everybody else is not in their 60s costume. It's not, you know, completely random. I'll, I'll right. Say I mean, it you can't, you can't explain, but it feels to me like there's a thematic or symbolic purpose to it. It puts us on edge in House of X in the way we're clearly supposed to be with Ernie <laughs> Xavier at first. And 
I'm interested to see where it goes. I found it more jarring when in the most recent issue of X-Men, she and Scott wore their X-Factor costumes. Mm -hmm. And I love those costumes. Those are actually my favorite Scott and Jean costumes. But X-Factor to me is such a specific era of those two characters, particularly as a Malin Pryor stan, (laughs) that I was just sort of like, why are they wearing these? (laughs) And I rationalize it as Jean doesn't want to wear a mini dress in space. It's zero G. She's got to put something (laughs) on with pants. (laughs) It's cold out there. Yeah, but it it is the juxtaposition of like Storm in her current outfit and Scott and Jean put on their 80s outfits and Jean was just wearing her 60s outfit. And I think that the reason it messes with people to some extent is because a lot of those outfits are fashions of the time in which they were created. Well, and I say all this to talk about the New Mutants because I think it's really hard to do a like line-wide revamp of everybody's uniforms yeah and have them all stick i think when you revamp characters you tend to get if you're lucky one look one that really two. sticks yeah and so because the new mutants tend to kind of go in waves right like right. it's it's difficult to just wholesale say okay everybody needs an iconic new look that will last them for the next several decades like that's really hard with magic, what happened was they took her out of the team. Yeah. They put her on the X-Men and she wasn't a new mutant at the time. And she was wearing a different costume because she wasn't with them. Yeah. And Cypher gets his little jacket in House of X yes. because Which he's not really great. with the team, you know, and I think that's just in general. I would love to see, I don't know. I feel like I, I'm, I'm a big Karma fan and I feel like she has sort of been the least developed of that class over the many decades, in part because she's not in most of the classic stories. She gets written out pretty fast. And she wasn't on X-Force, and she wasn't, you know, she hasn't really been around as much. I, when we go to the graduation costumes, I don't know about the red yin-yang, but otherwise, (laughs) I like that green look for her. I I, I think she's a character where you could absolutely do a costume that was different, that would be interesting, especially with um, her prosthetic leg, which that was a good way to make her visually distinctive. Well, the thing that's crazy about that, those issues in the Claremont run where they're all wearing like something different and something of the era, every issue, every issue with something new. Yeah. Is that that team it's, it's, it really goes back to the like character design of it, which is you look at the group and even in the most sketchy Sinkevich impressionist iteration of those characters, you're like tall, skinny, blonde hair, that's Sam. Short, you know, darker hair, darker coloration, sunspot. Like all the girls' hair, even though there are multiple blondes, Ileana's is so distinctive. You always know if you're looking at Ileana with the bangs or at Amara with the curls. You always right. know. And like to some extent, when you're not like building a team from whole cloth, it's harder to do that. But I think you can say like, okay, this character is always going to have, you know, I think you could have two characters with red hair, but like one of them needs to have it in a ponytail, you know, because yeah, absolutely. It's, well, you listen, know, a lot of characters have same face, and that's just the facts. Here's what I'll say: Jean Grey and Madeline Pryor literally have the same face, and yet you always know which one you're looking at. Yeah. Unless it's a plot that you're not supposed to. But <laughs> the like the way that I point to it is even in, in Madeline's introduction story, Time for Moments with Maddie, as always on this podcast, in Madeline's introduction story, they gave her Louise Simonson's haircut. 
which was a very trendy haircut at the time, but that sort of bob that curls in at the shoulders, Mm -hmm. Jean has never had that haircut. Right. And so throughout the Paul Smith, Scott and Madeline courtship stories in From the Ashes and all the way through their marriage and all the way through Fall of the Mutants, she doesn't grow her hair out into the outback in preparation for Inferno, where the visual similarity between her and Jean is the point of the plot. You always know you're looking at Maddie because she has different hair and because they have different fashion sets, the two of them. Right. With comics where, yeah, it's difficult, especially in a book with 10 characters, to make everyone's face look really distinct. So everybody has to instead have a unique silhouette. I do think that the New Mutants, even when they are all in uniforms, are very identifiable characters individually. Even when they're not using their powers. (laughs) Correct. I just think that, I mean, maybe Magma less so. I feel like she's only truly recognizable when she's powered up. But, you know, because otherwise you're like, is that Boom Boom? No, wait, it's Magma. You know what I mean? Right. Is she crying about not understanding technology? Oh, it's Magma. Uh, It's Magma. Is she a little problematic it's magma it's fine tell me about it <laughs> do not do not add us magma fans <laughs> point is to go back i think though that if you are gonna have a character from any class break out the way that i would say magic and monet have that they do need to have a look that is their look yeah And so I would like to see, as this era continues, characters like Roberto and Sean and Danny maybe get some redesigns the way that Ileana did. But I think that right now, where they're all reacclimating as a group and leading the students and all of that, it it does make sense to have them in sort of Xavier school gear. And just in general, I mean, I feel like I have to say this because, like, medically, it's going to burst out of me. Um... I think that's something that people undersell in comics is the ability to draw like like street clothes, like to yeah. design costumes, but also to draw street clothes. Like but to, to draw fashion is really hard. It really is troubling to me <laughs> how often <laughs> people are in like jeans and t-shirts. Yeah, particularly like women in like a crew neck t-shirt and a like boot cut straight leg jean. It's it's troubling is probably putting it you know too too strongly, but like well, but it's talk about same face, it's same clothes. Like the thing about the '80s Outback X Men, they're all in street clothes, but each one of them has such a distinctive personal style. Yeah, it's it's just the idea of everybody being dressed the same. You're losing out on this like massive opportunity for characterization because the way people dress is a enormous indicator of the way they are feeling about the world the way they want other people to perceive them mm-hmm. and it it's a bummer and it's the kind of thing that as an editor you know I try to encourage when possible some part of it is monthly comics and yeah the demands we already put on our artists are pretty big that to say like and can you go through you know street style pinterests right you know every time you draw just to make sure that somebody's wearing like what would be cool for them or what would be appropriate for them I just love Danny in like a fringe leather jacket. I would love to see Sean in like executive lesbian, (laughs) hot, hard femme kind of fashions. I think that would be fun. Give Sean like a really hot suit, in my opinion. (laughs) I would enjoy that very much. I think it would be fun. I don't know. I I think there are a lot of great options for everybody. Yeah. And I, and I, here's the thing. I'm very, very excited about this new run of the new mutants. I have loved Vita's two issues so much. 
it is exactly the book I want New Mutants to be. I will say, can I say, here's a little sneak peek for the, the listeners of the Cerebrum podcast. Uh, I just finished another issue in which we see Danny and Karma in completely new, never-before-seen looks. Love to hear it. Do they make out? You don't have to tell me. I, <laughs> I, just think I, can, they should. I can tell you that they don't. <laughs> oh, well, I think they should, personally. That's just okay. my hot take. It would be such great payoff for that scene in the aughts when Karma is talking to Danny and Danny's like, well, Sean, as a heterosexual, and Sean's just like, excuse me? Every, everybody on that old school New Mutants team was constantly just like like getting like a slight vibe off each other. Well, it's Chris Claremont. It's Chris yeah. Claremont. You can't, like everyone, every single character that Chris Claremont writes is bisexual. Without exception. Except for the ones who are gay. Right. There's that scene after Demon Bear where like Sam just like inexplicably walks in on Danny changing and she's yeah. just like, can you give me like a second? Can we be a little less horny right now? I just fought the demon bear those characters are constantly like getting into fights in their swimsuits and well, that's like... why it felt so real and teenage like they're they're all so hormone driven all the time in that book it's really it's in a way book. that like i don't think you could do a book about no 14 year olds who are like actively kind of wanting each other no jordan white on his episode where we talked about brian braddock he mentioned that when chris claremont came back to do that story set during the cross time caper they had to censor kitty's outfit yeah. Even though it was the outfit she had worn in the original story. But it was like, we can't have a 15-year-old girl in an outfit that makes it clear she's not wearing any panties. Yeah, I think like, <laughs> Ileana is constantly drawn. in, And this is a, p- a piece of the Ileana thing that's never sat super right with me, is that Ileana is a child. Ten seconds later, she's 15. And, and ten seconds after that, she's in a black bikini fighting the evil. And it's like, okay, but th- mentally... You know, as far as everybody else knows, this is a seven-year-old. Well, but she's not. I mean, for me, that's the alien weirdness. of the. My read of that as someone who is deeply attached to that character is I've just always been really invested in Eliana's story as a child sex abuse story, which is a specific reading, but I think is very underlined in the Simons and stuff in Inferno. I mean, if you've read What If Magic, which is me yet again pitching the story that I edited that Leah wrote and Felipe Andrade and Chris O'Halloran uh, I know you agree with me on this. I'm just saying that the that's... read is there, in my opinion. Yeah, it's it's always been my read of the character. I read Inferno when I was 12, and I was devastated by that storyline in the most incredible way. I mean, I think it's I think that's what happens when you give that character to a woman. I don't think Claremont could have done it that way, and I think Simonson did something really genius. I don't know. I'll get into this whenever I get to her episode, but. To me, the way that she's very... Because, like, Ileana never actually approaches anyone sexually. Mm-hmm. She's never actually interested in romance in terms of, like, pursuing it. But she does immediately, when she's back, sort of instinctively dress in a provocative way. And if you look at psychological studies of people who've experienced trauma like that as young people, sometimes that is a defense mechanism. So to me, it made sense in that way. I'm not saying that's what Chris Claremont intended, but it's one of those things where if you're reading the character a certain way, you can make it make sense. Like we know prize our characters together, right? Because it's so many writers over so many years. But I don't know. That's my take. <laughs> yeah, I think it's all it's all very, very interesting. And X-Men. <laughs> yeah, X-Men, X-Men. It's really, it's all psychosexual trauma and it's great. 
One last question. Patrick writes, Hi, Connor. So Doug was a character I knew very little about until these past few years once he was reintroduced as an important cog in how this Krakoan society operates. I'm fascinated by his relationship with the island and what possible secrets he might be aware of. The panel in one of the early Hickman issues of Cyclops briefly seeing a chat between Doug, Warlock, not revealed to be back yet, and Krakoa was incredibly eerie. Do you think that Doug's closeness with Krakoa is cause for concern? Yes, I do. And that is the answer to my, that is my answer to that question. I think it's something we ought to keep an eye on. And I'm sure that you can't say it. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> yeah. Keep keep an eye out if you would like. I think we should keep a watchful eye on all of that. I also think that it's really important that Doug let the techno-organic thing survive at the end of Giant Size Storm. The fact that we've seen Doug sort of inadvertently or maybe not inadvertently infect some Krakoan foliage with techno-organic stuff. I, there's a lot going on there, but it's a story that is still unfolding. So. I think it probably implies that Doug is not an important character and nothing's going on with him. Right. Clearly nothing relevant to the storyline is happening with Doug. Yeah, no. It's exactly I would forget all about Cypher if I were you. <laughs> well, Annalise, thank you so much for being my guest. This was a really delightful conversation. Thank you for so much of your time. Very generous on a weekend when you could be relaxing. Why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you on the web and plug anything you want to plug? Sure. Um, so I am on Twitter at, at Annalise Bissa, and I tweet mostly about the X-Men. Uh, that is, I, I always feel kind of weird saying this, but when I have the opportunity, I will say it. I don't have a public uh, Instagram or anything. So uh, mm-hmm. you may be able to find my Instagram, but I will not allow you to follow me. I'm like, please don't follow it. Right. <laughs> you know, that's my, that's my real life Instagram. Um, right. But yes, I'm happy to talk on Twitter about X-Men because I love the X-Men and uh, you can find my work uh, in comics shops near you uh, because I am uh, editing many of your favorite X-Men comics. Yeah. Tell them which ones you're editing right now. You're editing New Mutants solo. What else are you working on at the moment? Yes, I am the editor on New Mutants, and then I am uh, helping out uh, associate editing under Jordan D. White. Uh, oh gosh, I'm going to miss some, I'm so sure. X-Men, Cable, Marauders, Sword. God, I love Sword. Sword is, how did we not talk about Sword? Sword is so great. Sword is so good. <laughs> you know, it's just... Come back for an episode on some Sword person, and we'll talk about Sword. Amazing. Um... I'm completely forgetting if there are any other ones. If there That's are, fine. You, then... were, you were on Hellions, which was great. I was on uh, Hellions. Not anymore. And regardless, anyway, buy all the books because they're all good. Yeah, they're all. Oh, I'm on Excalibur with Teeny. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, duh. Right. No, that's why we first got connected. I so. knew I was forgetting one. Um, but yeah, so I I work on all of that, and I work on some other stuff. Um, I'm on the upcoming America Chavez book mm. that's about to come out in the summer. Uh, no, not the summer. March. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> it was supposed to come out in the summer, and then coronavirus happened. Right. But yeah, other than that, uh, I have mentioned it a couple times, but I co-coordinate the Marvel Editorial Internship Program with Lauren Amaro. Uh, It's not currently running because of coronavirus, but at some point we are really hoping to get it back up and running. And so if you know any uh, college students or you are a college student who likes comics and wants to learn how to make them and hang out with us and see inside the you know, the madness. How to do it the Marvel way. Exactly. Uh, it is a 
paid internship program, and we like to think that it's a lot of fun. It's how a bunch of Marvel editors and staffers got their start, and um, I can answer any questions you may have about that as well. So those are my, my main things. Thank you so much again. This was great. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon and on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes, including transcripts of the episodes as they get up and more are coming soon at CerebroCast.com, the official landing page for the website. You can write into Cerebro with your questions, comments, and feedback at CerebroCast at gmail.com. Next week's episode will feature my good friend, YouTube comics guru, Patrick Willems, filmmaker extraordinaire, who will be here to chit-chat with me about one of our favorite X-Men villains, Cassandra Nova. So if you have questions about Professor Xavier's twin sister, sort of, it's complicated, write in, and we will answer them next week. As always, thank you so much for your support. You can join the conversation on the Cerebro Discord, which is linked at CerebroCast.com. You guys mean the world to me, and this is keeping me sane through the pandemic. So thank you for all the engagement, and um, I feel so privileged to have become part of this community. So thank you all. And Annalise, thank you again for being my guest. Of course. I realized I have one more thing to plug, which is just the panel the panel of New Mutants where Doug Ramsey calls Magneto a butthead. That's it. Just, Solid. Just, that Solid. exists. You know, after Eric spent so many years crying over him, you'd think <laughs> Doug could be a little nicer. <laughs> well, until next time, everybody. Bye. X-Men. X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is 